This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. 
I myself have used them for several years and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their multivitamin elite, their whey protein, the super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Steve Farina. Now, Steve is a veteran firefighter in Canada, having started in the paid-on-call fire service and transitioning to career, and is now well embedded not only in the firefighter mental health world, but also in several union branches. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, some of his traumatic career calls, the firefighter resiliency program that he not only set up, but ultimately went through a decade later, sleep deprivation, addiction, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 660 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Steve Farina. Enjoy. Well, Steve, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Lionel Crowther for connecting us, and secondly, to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's an absolute honor, James. Very, very excited to be here, my friend. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm from the great Northwest, eh, in Canada. So a little town called Porcocolum, which is outside of Vancouver. Everything's outside of Vancouver here in British Columbia. Beautiful. So let's start at the very beginning of your journey then. I've heard you speak on podcasts. I think 10.8 was the one I listened to. You know, we've had a conversation, but I really don't know a huge amount about your journey. So where were you born? And then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Well, I was born in Vancouver here in Canada and grew up in a little town called Langley and then uh, moved into Coquitlam with um, the second wife. Uh, my parents 
my dad grew up in Italy. He he um, came over here on the Queen Mary at, at 14 years old with his brother. His dad had already come over, immigrated here to find a better life for them. And so he moved here with the oldest. And then my, my dad came over with the youngest and met them over here. So kind of cool because they landed in Nova Scotia and Halifax and uh, took the train right across. And uh, they grew up in Vancouver and, you know, started off as a shoeshine kid worked his way through sheet metal and became a superintendent of Dairyland, which is a dairy, huge dairy place. I think it's called Saputo now. And um, yeah, he's like a, a maintenance guy, uh, millwright by trade, and this old school Italian guy that just grows everything and anything, um, grapes, tomatoes, um, fruit. It's unreal, this guy. He's 80 years old and he's still clicking. Two bouts of cancer, diabetic. I mean, he's like, there's nothing that can kill this guy. And uh, I hope he has the same longevity as your grandmother, man. And my mom was an English war. My, her mom was an English war bride. And she came over on the Queen Mary a lot younger, though. And then she landed in Vancouver. And they got set up on a blind date. And, and from two of their best friends. And they got connected. And, you know, the Italian guy and the English gal. And then she, I think, just became a default Italian herself, cooking and swearing. And, yeah, she's a, a tough old gal right now. She's struggling in the hospital right now but um yeah they have been married for 55 years and um yeah one of the few that have make it made, made it that far so that's my background I've got a brother too he's my he's a younger brother and I always make fun of him I think he's my older brother I always try to say that I'm the younger younger of us the younger looking anyway but uh yeah he's up in Kelowna with my folks and he's got two daughters and I have a daughter they're two days apart and um he was able to, as my sister, I was able to push her out faster than my ex was. So, and they're 16 years old and the other one's 13. And yeah, man, that's, that's it. I mentioned, I got a couple of ex-wives there. I think this job, if you look around, <laughs> my God, there's so many people that are separated, divorced. I don't know if it's just us or it's the job or a combination of, but anyway, I know you're happily married, my friend. So that's Second all. time. <laughs> <laughs> Right on. So, well, it's uh, interesting. You mentioned the Queen Mary. So, from what I understand, that is the same kind of fleet as the, uh, you know, the QE2 and, and Queen Elizabeth. And I believe it sits in Long Beach, California now, if I'm not mistaken. So, how crazy that your mum was from England and was on that shift. Your dad was from Italy, was on that ship. And that ship now sits moored as a tourist attraction. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, she was, a little town, she was from a little town called Derbyshire. Yeah. And my dad was from this little tiny little mountain town called Chivitanova. And I want, I visited Chivitanova already, but I want to go see where my mom was born. So I'm hoping she gets better so I can drag her over there and tootle across the countryside. Now, when, you know, the, the last few years, the word immigration has, has created certain feelings in certain people, some positive, some negative. Um, but I love hearing these immigration stories. Obviously, you know, I, I'm living one myself. What were your parents' immigration story? How were they received in, in Canada specifically? Well, you know, I talked to my, my, more about my dad, about his immigration story, being an Italian. You know, he was, went to Vancouver Tech. And he was exposed to a ton of racism actually growing up. And, and, and I was, it was interesting because, you know, <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this. Yeah, he, he has a little racist tendencies himself, right? And and that was, I don't know if that's epigenetics or what, but um, yeah, he had a story where he defended, he was the bigger of the two brothers. He was the youngest, but he was like 
you know, he was a giant in his family. And so he got in a lot of fights defending his brothers from other people, basically picking on them, um, making fun of them, you know, getting called all the racist names. And, uh, you know, he fought his way up and played football and was quite a physical kid lacrosse and, and then, um, and then made it in the world with that kind of, you know, his dad had amazing work ethic. The guy walked, you know, from Vancouver over the Iron Man Workers Memorial Bridge to find work. He worked at a hotel, like walked everywhere, never had a car. Like we're talking hundreds of kilometers this guy walked just to provide for his family. So that's how they kind of grew up. This, you know, classic immigrant origin story where they, you know, fought for their meals and, and everything, right? But also had this great kind of sense of Italian community that they were very close growing up and they had you know, a lot of Italian friends and, and then here come my, comes my white mom, English mom into the picture. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she was, uh, she was a little bit of a rebel and, you know, coming from a, a, a war family, I guess they, um, you know, she had her own challenges. So yeah, it was interesting growing up in those times back in the, you know, the fifties and sixties there here in, in Vancouver. So they, I think they both had unique journeys for sure. Hard lives, I think. And, you know, they sacrificed a lot for my brother and I, you know, growing up, they worked very hard to provide for us and create a life for us. And, and then my brother and I are just kind of grabbing that torch and trying to do the same thing for our kids. Now with your dad coming from, you know, a family where Italian family, there's a lot of cooking, a lot of community around the table, and then him working in the dairy industry too. What has been, if anything, if you had any, any conversations about this, his observation of how food and, and the family table has somewhat devolved as we've kind of progressed through the, the, the I guess, decades? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we would go, so when my, when my grandfather was alive, like my grandmother died quite young of a heart attack, like in her 40s. And so my grandfather was around the longest. He lived till he was 94. And so he kind of was like the center, the patriarch of the family. And so so get togethers and family meals kind of revolved around him. And so that interestingly enough, when he passed away, we just stopped doing that, getting together. Now everyone kind of was doing their own thing and, and getting together with their families. But, you know, growing up, it was cousins and was, it was, it was tons of um, weddings and anniversaries and celebrations. And so, you know, you get all the, the wops together, right? And they're drinking homemade wine and making pasta. And it's, it's a huge love in, right? There's seven up bottles full of wine everywhere. And, and, you know, it's just like exactly how you think growing up Italian is, it was like you're playing bocce in the backyard and, and you know, all the old guys are chatting and the wives are in the kitchen cooking. And, um, and that's how I grew up. And, and it's interesting. My, we lived in Langley. So we were kind of on a, a hobby farm. And we were sort of detached. And, and because my mom was English and didn't speak Italian, we were kind of like a little bit ostracized. And I know she talked about that as she was never fully accepted into that family. And she cooked for us. Like you got two boys, like we ate them out of house and home. And then we brought all our friends over and my mom would cook like, you know, 400 pancakes and we would feed half the neighbors and all of my friends. And so it became our own little family table. And so we did a lot of our stuff on our own and we went to a family cabin and and all the other Italians, you know, grew up talking Italian, learning Italian. My brother and I are probably the only cousins that don't. And I was curious why my dad never spoke to us like that. And I guess he just wanted us to grow up Canadian. And the fact that his wife was English and didn't speak Italian. And 
you know, over the years, I'm not kind of rambling, but over the years, my mom really took an interest, went to the Italian Culture Center. We were going to Italy. So she learned Italian, made a lifelong friend with, with one of the gals that was going through there and, and really put the effort in. And, you know, she cooked amazing pizza and pasta. And there was definitely a, a, a love for cooking for us. And so my dad appreciated that old school, right? And it's interesting because now she hates cooking. <laughs> and my brother and I absolutely love cooking. And my dad's now cooking for himself because he's just like, whatever. Like, I don't care. He's pretty self-sufficient and makes minestrone and pasta vajol and all kinds of stuff. And I'm pretty proud of him for, for changing as an old Italian dude, for sure. So, yeah, there was growing up around that table, man, was... Yeah, I look back and it was it was a it was a pretty awesome time. It was uh, and I always say, and I kind of want to want to do at the bar hall is like you know families that eat together stay together. And even though I haven't been able to hold my family together, my fire family is super healthy, and our kitchen table at work is is a real healing place. You know, you you know solve the world's problems around that table, and so there's probably growing up that way really made me think of how important that was at the bar hall, and when I came to the fire service we all everyone cooked for themselves and it was really strange everyone cooked their own little separate meals and my hiring class we came in and, we're, and we talked about it. it's like what the hell is going on here i thought you come in you cook as a family and you're you're all in the kitchen and and everyone was doing their own things and i think that was a tsn turning point back in 1997 where like hell no like i'm cooking for everybody and i became the cook for 10 years at our town center fire hall i was the guy buying groceries, cooking, and of course, everyone else chipped in and helped and did their own thing. But I think there was an evolution where we went back to the old school, you know, fire hall, well, how you picture the fire hose, right? You're, you're cooking together. I'm the company officer. I'm the captain. I'm in there chopping vegetables shoulder to shoulder with my guys and prepping because that's a, a huge, important family time where you connect, check in on each other. And there's, you know, there's all the frivolity and fun and poking fun at each other and yeah, so it's a very special t- place for me at that kitchen table in the kitchen, man. Yeah, I grew up around the same thing. I'm one of five kids and grew up on a farm, and we had a lot, a lot of people coming in. It was crazy. It was all the way from gypsies, and I mean that in an endearing term, all the way through to <laughs> members of the royal family, the extended royal family. And you know, you never knew who was going to walk through a door, but everyone got offered the same cup of tea, and it was just beautiful. But I remember when I first joined Hialeah, one of my classmates was a phenomenal chef. And I watched him get left behind when we went to a fire to finish. I was like, all right, I'm never going to cook so well <laughs> that I'm going to miss a fire. <laughs> so, which was never a danger. I'm appreciative. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just okay, but it was like, okay, I see. So don't be so good that you're left in the station to, to cook. So yeah, it was a, it was an early lesson for me. But yeah, that brother and sisterhood, that camaraderie that's built around the kitchen table. And as we'll get into the offloading, the mental health component to that dining room table, I think is, Sadly, one of the things, especially through COVID, when I'm hearing that they all had to eat in different rooms and all this bullshit that we need to circle around and make sure is is the nucleus of a fire station. Oh, my God. Yeah, man. And it, it's funny because when I became a company officer with my new crew that I had, um, they had coffee cups made that said town center where dreams come to die because we're in the administration fire hall where the chiefs are. And I'm like, we cannot... I love the fire service. I can't have this doom and gloom attitude where this us and them and, you know, this is a terrible place to work and, you know, we're crushing boxes and washing cars and, you know, it's, it just, that's, that's not how I envisioned it. So 
I made a new rule at the table where we practiced gratitude at dinner, one, one of the night shifts. And we sat down, we went around the table and they made fun of me at first. And I always started off and give me one thing that you're grateful for. And whether it's, I went fishing that day, spent some time with my kids, I masturbated, like whatever they talked about. <laughs> like, and I'm like, good for you. You found something that you celebrate, man. Like, and, and it, at first there was funny answers and then, and eventually they were, they were getting it. And you know, as well as I, you know, practicing gratitude, both re- retrain your brain and give you perspective. And as shitty of a time you're having, there's always something to be grateful for. And the other piece that I incorporated as a company officer was a check-in, first day shift, sat around the coffee table and literally checked in with everybody. And you, did, you could participate or not, but, um, you know, I filled them in on what was going on my four off, whether it was, you know, some marital shit or something to do with my kid or whatever in life or work. And I shared a little bit about myself. And, I, you know, that being that vulnerable and honest and authentic with each other really was bonding because, we heard each other's stuff, where they were at today, what they needed from me and uh, to help them with their day. They wanted to work out. They're, they're super tired. They needed a kip or whatever, right? And so I heard them where they were at and we did that. In, and we don't do that as much anymore. It just happens organically. But we were, I was seeing a table of coffee drinking, people on their phones, doing the crossword, not connecting, right? In the mornings. And and from shift to shift, from hall to hall, it's different. Sometimes you're, it's so loud in there, you can't even think. And I know some of the older comp- company officers, they just go into their office and hide because it's just a shit show. It sounds like, you know, a barn in there, right? With all the animals screaming. And then everyone's che- checking in with each other, though. If it's quiet at the table in the morning, there's something wrong, I think. And people aren't sharing. And I think, you know, you talk about the kitchen table. That is, it's a such a, yeah, COVID was a shit show. People were eating in different rooms and and we were so disconnected and we need to do we need to be I would say intentional with that, right? Checking in with our people. And, you know, as an officer, as a leader, you have to do that with your folks, right? You got to find out where they're at cuz the whole person, it's not just the work person, it's the life person. They have young kids, what do they got going on in their life that is going to affect them on the job? Are they going to be distracted at the call? or drive into the call or whatever, right? So it's their head in the game. And it's, that was, that's, was a real critical thing that I wanted to do. And um, I still got guys that want to stay on my crew, so doing something right. <laughs> I get made fun of a lot, though, James. I'm telling you, man. I get made fun of it. Oh, there's Farina practicing gratitude or, you know, he's doing his check-ins. What a loser. So <laughs> I don't care, man. I, don't, I give zero fuck. so... I find if I want to elevate people, I, I gather them around and say, let's talk about Donald Trump and Joe Biden, because that always brings out such positivity and gratitude and acceptance. <laughs> right, for fuck's sake, you'll, turn, you'll, you'll talk about that shit for hours. So how about you just change the topic about something that actually is going to pay dividends? When you're talking right about, uh, you know, the sexual side in the fire station, one of my uh, fellow firefighters in Orange County was videoing with his wife on his phone on a shift and it was towards the east side of the county and uh he was caught by some of his fellow firefighters and ever since then his nickname was the east side strangler so (laughs) (laughs) i love it i love the nicknames that we get on this job it's awesome man it is another one of my favorite i've said this before an amazing guy in Anaheim, one of the captains at the time, Joel, um, so chill. So he would be someone that would be accused of saying, you know, talking about gratitude. But 
was a polar opposite when you woke him up at night and you know anaheim most fire departments around the world you know you're up all night and so he would go from super chill nice guy to angry you know joel in the evening so they called him by (laughs) jola i love it man that's epic oh i love it so well do you have any nicknames yourself man or I always said the good thing about being English is there were so many British nicknames that I never got some of the more brutal ones that I heard in the fire service. So it was usually Brit, Limey, you know, Austin Powers, you name it, you know, and so, some endearing ones <laughs> that came from training and stuff. But yeah, usually it was it was British related, so it wasn't too bad. A lot of tooth jokes, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's too funny. Right on. All right. Well, I want to get to your journey into the fire service, but before we do... Um, obviously physical wellness, fitness is very important as well as mental health. Talk to me about what you were playing or the athletics that you were doing when you were school age. So through high school, I mean, God, yeah. I mean, soccer growing up, of course, or football, I should say. Right. And, uh, so I played years of that as, and then kind of what, uh, aged out, interest out, or didn't have the skill. And then I, I picked up lacrosse, played that for a couple of years and, and I played rugby in high school as well. And, and after that, you know, I got into the fire service. I didn't play team sports after that. I wasn't one of the hockey guys. I wasn't one of the guys that continued playing so- adult soccer. And, and I just, I'm, I, I look back and I wonder why, because I thought, I know how important team sports are and how much I love playing that. And I just, I guess I was in a new team sport, right? And so I never continued on um, with those things. But yeah, I, I had a love of those you know, I had so much fun playing lacrosse and rugby and, and soccer as a kid, for sure, or football as a kid. And, um, and now my daughter, she just picked up the lacrosse stick. And I was, you know, I picked up the stick for the first time and had one of the guys, he restrung an old stick for me. And because we've got tons of lacrosse players on my job. And uh, there I start throwing the ball around with her. And I'm like, this is, God, I miss this. Like, I almost want to play again, but I'm too old, man. I'm 50 years old now. Like, you're not too I old. Some of our, I know, man. It's, I should really do that. Yeah, one of the guys at my jujitsu school who I think he's technically a brown belt is 63, I think. Awesome. Still lean, still just murdering us, you know, left and right. So, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you're never too old. No. I recant that. They take that back. As I want to say, he started when he was about 50 or yeah, very, very early 50s. So, yeah, it's nev- you're never too old. All right. What about um, career aspirations? So when you were coming through the high school ages, what were you dreaming of becoming? Was it the fire service or was there something else in your mind? Police service, man. I did. I remember in grade nine, the career education guy, uh, I can remember Mr. Howes, I think his name was. Anyway, he put me through some like you, you write a bunch of uh, kind of personality stuff, right? To see what kind of jobs you would kind of line up with. And for me, it pointed to military, police, Military, police, or fire. And I never even thought about being a firefighter. It was always about being a police officer. I wanted to be in the military. And I remember, you know, going to the RCMP, the Royal Mounted Police, the recruiting officer in, in Langley where I was growing up. And I, I God, I'm not sure if I was 18 years old at the time. And I went in there and I'm like, yeah, I want to be a police officer. He goes, son, and I tell you right now, you don't have hope in hell. You're white male and we're only really hiring women right now and people of different ethnicity. That should be an inspirational poster. That's beautiful. Right? Yeah. (laughs) That's inspired the children of the world. Yeah. (laughs) So it's interesting because I'm like, ah, shit, right? I didn't, so I didn't even pursue that at all. And I had two friends that I was growing up with from elementary school. Both their dads were in the fire service. 
and remember getting tours of the fire hall and seeing them and and uh i'm like god maybe i should uh, you know go in the fire service so i chatted with them they're like it's the most fun this job is amazing so much fun why would you want to be a cop everybody hates cops everyone loves firefighters and literally that changed the trajectory of my you know what i wanted to aspire to i wanted to be like these guys and i got into the uh, paid on call fire service in Langley Township. They trained me. And I'm, I'm, there's this old English guy who was teaching us ropes and knots. He's an old ex sailor. And I had such a block, man. Like I could not tie a knot, a knot for the life of me. And this guy just was belligerent and badgering me. And I vowed to learn this so that I, he, I would like impress him like my dad, right? And it literally took me a year and a half to really good, good. And ironically, later on in my career, I became a tech rescue guy, uh, high, a high angle, uh, confined space. I was teaching recruits ropes and knots. And I guess because I had wrapped my brain around it, I was able to teach people how to tie knots a little with a lot less yelling and being belligerent. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of got me in the, and I was a paid on call firefighter for five years. And learned as cool stuff. I was did some training with them. Like I actually was training people in water rescue. We did, um, you know, I did equine rescue, auto acts, like all the stuff, hazmat, you name it. It was it was awesome because we had two teachers um, that were in the training division. They were actual like high school teachers, and they were amazing instructors in the fire service. And that's who I I learned under. And one of the guys was such a compassionate dude. He started um, critical incident stress management way back then. We're talking in the early 90s. And like this was cutting edge in the fire service. He didn't do system, right? And so I grew up with that right out of the gate. Now, did we run them all the time? Fucking hell no. We saw so much shit as a paid on call firefighter. You went to everything, right? Pager went off. You went to every call. There was no miss, you know, miss a bunch of calls because you're on a different ship. And we, um, yeah, I saw a lot of horrific stuff in that early where my brain wasn't formed yet. You know, James, like that, I mean, I shit my, I'm 50. My brain probably hasn't fully developed yet, but, uh, that 19 to 25 range and you see all of that trauma, I think it may, it changed me as a human being for sure. And then I got married and then I got, you know, I call it my mulligan marriage, you know, lasted, you know, X amount of years. And then moved on to the next marriage and and me as a person through those relationships I was a different dude and then I got hired as a career firefighter and then yeah off I went 25 years just celebrated 25 years in Coquitlam finished that so and <sighs> career aspirant I did everything in that job like so far I was I'm a you know from a first class firefighter apparatus operator ladder rescue tanker tender um did it all was in the training division for a year and a half and the first 10 years of my career i was in a dispatch center as a relief dispatcher too so we basically relieved the guy on our lunch break so he could have a break and then when he was on holidays we'd spend sets in there and i remember just being a kid in this dispatch center with pen and paper taking 911 calls and i'm like they have me in charge of the entire city I, i'm dispatching trucks everywhere and i'm this like 26 year old kid and I look back, I'm like, good Lord, like I, I did all of that. And here I am now, I'm a temp company officer in charge of a bunch of people. And I still think I'm a kid. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, man. Well, going back to the paid on call department for a moment, 
yeah. it sounds like they were extremely well organized. Sounds like you had a high level of training. So talk to me about that department. What made them so good when, you know, obviously there's a spectrum of departments, some paid, uh, some, you know, purely volunteer, some paid on call, some, you know, career, but a mixed, you know, that doesn't dictate whether they're a good department or a bad department. So what made that paid on call one so good and have so many progressive people working in it? That's a great question because, you know, Langley is, was a farm community, right? And so I think it really boiled down to the leadership and people that didn't have a ton of ego. That was the kind of key ingredient. You had two guys that were teachers, their background were teachers. And so they were all about the NFPA, they get in a thousand and one. And I guess it was called something different back then, but they wanted everyone held to a standard and their recruit training and training every Tuesday night, you, you were building up to become a fire a firefighter one, firefighter two. They had anything you wanted to take, you could take, right? From pumps and pumping and hydraulics, auto X. And I, I mentioned all of the things and there was, and they were innovative. I, I could not believe how progressive they were, even in the mental health field, having a SISM team back then, it's unheard of. Shit, people still don't have those. And so I really boiled down to the people that were in charge that had that vision that training was integral, being professionals, regardless of being a volunteer paid on call department. And you had people that really cared and, and wanted to do a really good job. And, you know, there's always this contention between career or, you know, they say professional firefighters and volunteers that we're all professionals. We all like, and you strive to be that um, good person that's providing to the community. And, and just because you do it full time, doesn't make you any better than if someone that is, I think it's even harder because I was working a full-time job as a grocery clerk for 10 years um, while I was a paid on call firefighter. And, and I see you guys were electricians and plumbers and they were people in the community, right? And they were doing this off the side of their desk. So they have to have an, uh, another layer of, of commitment to come out on Tuesday nights. And yes, yeah, some came out as a social aspect and didn't put, didn't put as much energy in, but I'd say the bulk of the people wanted to be professional and serve their community in that capacity. And when they got called, they took that job super serious. And no, not everyone was an awesome firefighter, but man, oh man, as a collective, it was, it was an honor to grow up in those ranks. And there were, I was a young, young man and there was a bunch of mature, you know, 40, got 40s and 50s and 60s year old men that uh, I really looked up to. And there's some women in there too that, you know, I learned a lot from as well. I mean, to come into a farming community, fire hall, and, you know, be a woman was, I mean, coming into the fire service as a woman period is difficult enough, but yeah, I learned a lot from those folks. And yeah, they were a very progressive department, man. Coming from, you know, farm, not so much a farming, but a farm boy background. My dad was a, a veterinarian and equine was his specialty. So it was mainly horses, but I grew up on a farm, sheep and geese and ducks and everything. The women on farms are more often than not, you know, as able, if not more able than a lot of the men. So did you notice any difference of the acceptance of the women in that area because of the physicality of growing up on a farm? Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, firefighting is a physical job. So if you can't drag a hose or throw a ladder, you're not going to be accepted as easily. Like everyone has their niche, I would say for sure, but it is a physical job. And I think, yeah, having that experience, um, having that physicality, as you mentioned, it's critical really to be accepted into our ranks. And they, you know, they've got a lot more to prove 
unfortunately. I mean, I guess anybody as a rookie, you do, of course, right? But they just have that extra barrier that they have to go. And yeah, that farm, that experience. And the ones that come from trades, right? Like they, you get a little more street cred, I think. So that physicality, that that mechanical ability, that really gets you far. People respect that. You can throw it, you know, start a chainsaw. There's some guys in some departments that cannot start a chainsaw, man. And like that, I think we're doomed <laughs> when I see that. <laughs> but it's an ever-evolving. They might be a freaking chemical engineer and be amazing at hazmat too, right? So, so what? They can't start a chainsaw. Um, but yeah, we all have our little nieces. But yeah, that's definitely a plus to have that. Yeah, well, I think that's where mentorship comes in because I grew up, you know, around tools. But I'll be honest, I wasn't, you know, very competent at, for example, breaking down a saw, changing a blade, the things, you know, I just would pick it up and cut something and then give it back to my dad, you know. So there were elements where I'll put my hand up and say, no, I absolutely need to be mentored on, you know, K-12s and, and chainsaws, far, especially as far as, you know, roof ops, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But, um, you know, there were a lot of things where, yeah, I knew how to use a sledgehammer, but it was to break rocks, not to, to breach a door. So I think yeah. understanding whatever skill set someone has, because how many crusty old guys ask someone else to help them with their cell phone these days, you know, right? to where, okay, what are you bringing? What are you lacking? Let's make the, you know, let's bridge that gap so we can bring you up to par rather than what the fuck do you mean you don't know how to start a chainsaw, you know? Yeah. So Yeah. You hit that nail on the head. And I know you did a post recently on mentorship, man. And that just resonated with me because, you know, I I think I was taught by an old crusty captain coming in is that leave it better than you found it. And that's whether that's, you know, improving operational stuff or whatever, but it's it's being a good mentor. And you you hit it on the head. It's like I've I got to know my people around me, so I knew what their skill sets were, right? I've got an electrician, I've got a sprinkler fitter, I've got a guy that, you know, that is an awesome carpenter. And so you you have this skill set around you. And if you approach it with curiosity and find out what they need to work on and, and check your ego to say, you know, you should already know that kid and go, Hey, you know, what do they have to offer me and, and to teach me? And I'm learning constantly from my guys and gals. And I think you're, you know, your job, I don't care if you're the junior firefighter, or the most senior guy, your job is to mentor everyone around you in some capacity. And I think, you know, we all, we owe it to ourselves as a industry to do that. Because if you don't, you lose so much knowledge. If you hold on to that knowledge and you think it's power and, and everyone else should just, they should learn it the hard way like you did, screw that, man. Like you want to impart those lessons you learn on other people. Like kind of my experiences with ropes and knots. I said, I want to teach other people to have fun and connect and, and do this safe and, you know, be competent and, and confident in your job. And that's our job. So that is that mentorship piece, man. I think it's just so critical. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about some of the traumatic calls that you had, you know, as a paid on call firefighter at the, the younger age that you were. Just before we progress through, because I know we're going to talk about your own mental health journey as well. When you look back at your childhood, aside from the fire service itself, were there any other elements that now with this, you know, different lens that you have, you might consider traumatic in the formative years? Uh, you know, Absolutely. And I probably haven't had this conversation with my folks like I should, but my brother, I have definitely talked about this is that I cannot complain about my childhood. They did the absolute best. My parents did the absolute best with the knowledge that they had and the childhood that they had. Now, 
do we transmit our trauma onto our kids? A hundred percent. And those experiences of being immigrant parents and, you know, raising us hooligans, that was probably traumatic in itself. But my experience growing up on a farm like yourself, I mean, how can I complain? I had food. I had two people that loved me. And, you know, my brother and I grew up in a very, what we thought was a, you know, a healthy atmosphere. We, you know, we, we played sports, we had clothes on our back, we, you know, ate dinner together. We had a cabin, like there's tons and tons of good memories and stuff to be grateful for. But I look back at why my relationships failed or later on in life is because of my experience with my dad. He, he's a different man now. He's a more gentle man now. He's got three granddaughters and him growing up, maybe not really doing interest, any thought of how he grew up with racism and the hardship that he grew up with and how he was uh, on us. Like I look back and he was a very strict dude and had very high expectations in, about work ethic. You know, like I remember my brother, and I would be picking rocks out of the garden because that's just, you have to do something and you got to get it ready for whatever and weeding and mowing the lawns. And like, there was a very high expectation to work hard and pay things off and, and get a job. And there wasn't, it wasn't verbal, but it was just implied. So kind of growing up with that. And then that dynamic with my mom being kind of ostracized from the family and she didn't really have family close. And so, you know, there were some attachment things going on, I'm sure. And it was, I look back and I'm like, it maybe it wasn't the healthiest environment growing up when it came to communication. And I can tell you, I held family meetings at 12, 14 years old because my family would be full on losing their shit. And I was like the, the mediator back then, man. Like I took on this role and I think it was an adult role is a problem solver, mediator, counselor. And my brother remembers it. He's like, I hated when you called family meetings. <laughs> Because lots of times it was around him because he was a little shit rat and uh, he caused some issues, right? And I was the golden child, perhaps. I don't know. But I had a ton of rage. Like he describes me as a as a uh, adolescent as kind of like a snap show. You know, you talked about your the bipolar uh, buddy on the job. Like I was like calm kid and then snap show. And I had a lot of rage that I didn't know what to do with this. I don't know if it was just teenage angst or what, but. I was mostly a jovial kid and people still describe me as that as like a happy kind of go lucky guy. But I had these really dark parts of me that, you know, and they still pop up today. I have way more insight now and awareness, but um, I got a really scary side of me that I'm not friends with and I've compartmentized them and I've been able to know when he's going to come out, but it's not like I'm Jekyll and Hyde, man, but, I'm a lot more calmer now, but man, oh man. So that, that, I don't know if that's a long explanation of my childhood experience, but yeah, my brother has a better memory of it and I have a lot of blanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, that's one of the, the lesser talked about symptoms of, you know, what a lot of us deal with. And I, I'll be, I'll throw a story back at you. Like I remember at the worst of it, which has to have been probably Orange County, we were getting just murdered every shift. And then I was at medic school as well. I was going through a divorce. I mean, it was just an absolute shit show. I was raising my son as a single dad, which I look back, and I don't know how the fuck I managed to do that because I don't know where the time was. But, um, and you know, someone would cut me up 
And I I swear to God, it took every ounce for me to not fly out of my car, punch my way through the window, <laughs> drag them out. Whether I was capable or not, of, or, you know, or get my ass handed to me, who knows? But that yeah. was it. And that's not me. I'm, you know, pretty chill normally, but fucking hell, you know. And I think that yeah, was man. exaggerated because I look back to my younger time. I used to beat the shit out of the barn door. I would kick it, you know, because I did martial arts then. And I'd just, you know, brutalize this poor door and get shouted at. But that's where... My rage went. I guess it was before drywall and monster energy drinks, so there weren't any drywall to punch through. So I was like a young Kyle, but <laughs> but you know it was. It was, and it was always inanimate oh objects. God. But yeah, that yeah. was kind of one of my expression. But I'm not a violent person. I'm not someone who walks around my chest out. So it is such a paradox, and it's this internal struggle. I want to be that nice guy, but there's a little part of me that wants to fucking punch someone square in the face. <laughs> yeah. I had some bloody knuckles to punch in some plywood too, man. Like when you said that, it's like, I, I remember punching my brother's door off the hinges. Like he would torment me to a piece where I would go after him. I'd never, maybe I strangled him a few times, but I'll never forget like punching the door off the hinges. Right. And going at him. And then my dad catching me and um, I'll never forget. Like my brother would be behind my dad fingering me and like, and, and like kind of mocking me when you say finger I, you so everyone who yeah. can't see the video you're talking yeah. about flipping them off yeah. not <laughs> yeah, <I'm> flipping them. <laughs> yeah, that flipping came across weird <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dude yeah oh my god get your head out of the gutter uh yeah so he's flipping me off and my dad is caught in between these two brothers that are going at it right and i call i said you little bastard and i think my dad thought i called him a bastard and Next thing you know, this old Italian guy's got me by the throat in the hallway, right? Picked me off the ground like I'm nothing. I'm 200, whatever, 190 pounds at that time. Picks me right off the ground like I'm nothing. And my brother's just laughing, laughing his ass off him behind me, right? So that, that was just a little glimpse of what, you know, we grew up with, right? So Now, what about when you were in the paid-on-call phase? Did you identify any sort of kind of mental health red flags back then or was it too early to really identify? There was a couple of calls that really shook me and I and I only recently and we'll talk about that firefighter resiliency program um, that I went through. I never processed any of that stuff, man. Like so you know we liken it to and we talk about this in CISM like critical incident stress management, it's like a bee sting, right? You go to a really horrific call and and I mean, we could go all day about, you know, the Rolodex of stories, but there's one early on in my career where it was the guy, a couple of um, Clydesdale horses pulling a cart in Langley. It was actually kind of ironic. This old dude, I don't know if he's an Amish dude or what, but right in front of the grocery store that I worked at, the guy fell out and the cart ran him over and basically, he was, he was yeah, it's a shit, shit show, right? I had to go past the call to get the, to the truck, to bring the truck over with the medical gear, right? And, um, and I look back, I'm like, God, that was, that was messed up. It was messy. You had to hose the shit down, you know, zip the guy up in a body bag, corner took him away and everything, and horses are running around. And it was, it was just one of those calls that, that was one of, and as you know, we've got this backpack full of calls. And I guess I loaded my backpack up early on in my career, like many people do. And I didn't do anything with it, man. I didn't process it. I just carried it. And I guess my legs got strong because I carried that right into my career service. And I never processed any of that stuff. And I knew they stung and I never did anything about them. And, you know, call after call that I've, I went to that were, that I joke about now and people ask, you know, 
tell me about your worst calls. And you're like, ah, like if you're a firefighter, yeah, you know, we do that around the coffee table, but like I had a bunch of soccer dads and I, I've told this story lots, man. It's like, let's go for beers. And I go with a bunch of soccer dads and they're not first responders. And you start pulling out these stories. And I just think of my paid on call days and all the way to my career days. And I, I'm like, no, no, like you guys, you don't need to hear my shit. Right. And then six beers in Steve is in story time, right. Mode. And I'm freaking offloading stuff that I never remembered or never think about. And I start giving them like 30 of my, my top 30. <laughs> right. And uh, it gets quieter and quieter and I'm pretty loud dude. So I get louder and louder. I'm, you know, half a dozen years in and uh, I walk out of there and I feel like a million bucks, James. Like I feel lighter. I've offloaded. I've shared it. I don't wear it anymore. And uh, these dudes never go to beers with me anymore. <laughs> one out of this guy, one guy is my friend still. Uh, he had the capacity to hear me. And yeah, I look back and yeah, it was, Im I was impacted obviously, but it took a bunch of beers to loosen me up. And then I guess flash forward to the resiliency program in 2019. It was the first time ever, man, that I, we do this pro timelining. You know, you've probably heard of this, right? You take your earliest childhood memory to becoming a first responder. And then you take become when you started being a first responder to present and you timeline stuff that was impactful for you in childhood and in your first responder world, and you kind of write them out. You write out a timeline of things that were flashbulb memories, things that stuck in your craw, rock in your backpack moments, and you write them down. And then when you write them down, there's something that happens with your brain where you start this healing trajectory where I acknowledge this was, it's in my nervous system, it's in my brain, it's trapped in my memory, and then you process it and you share that with somebody and you verbalize it. And if you can have some healthy people that validate that around you and support you, and there's something very healing about that, man. So I found that was a very powerful experience. There's a very long answer <laughs> to what you asked, man. But uh, I never, I, sh I should have done more early on in my career. Rumor, I really should have. Rumor has it those men are still rocking in a corner somewhere. In <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you ask for, fuckers. <laughs> uh, no shit, exactly, man. The horrors, the horrors. But what you were saying, yeah. though, about the timeline, it's funny. I wrote the book a couple of years ago now during COVID. That's one of the, the only good things that came out of COVID, I think. Um, not saying my good book was good, but the, the productivity the that came out of you know my personal timeline. Um, but... I was like, okay, well, you know, obviously I need to use some of the calls so I can illustrate some of the things that I'm going to be talking about. Let me write down all the, not the, the deaths that would take a whole, you know, notepad up, but just, just the, 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 the brutal traumatic events that I attended to. And I only was on, on for 14 years. So half of your career. And I think it was like two plus pages you know, one death on each line. And I was like, holy shit. And that was the ones I could remember. To this day, things still pop in my head. Oh, yeah, that one. Oh, yeah, the, the shaken baby. Oh, yeah. You know and I mean? It's it's amazing how it compartmentalizes. And writing the book for me was so cathartic because there was an element of exactly what you're talking about. And when I was done with it, apart from the weight of trying to finish a book, but storytelling some of these and then turning them into a positive takeaway as well, was so incredibly healing. So I can see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, man, that's very cool. We we started a anti-stigma campaign as part of a first responder committee, a part of it's called Share It, Don't Wear It. And 
it's exactly that. If you don't share that, whether with it's a peer, a mental health professional, a friend, a family support or whatever, you're going to wear it and it gets heavy, right? And, you know, whether you're 5, 10, 15, 30 years on the job, if you do not process that and don't, you know, you said it, man, is that cathartic um, introspective, just kind of digging deep and really acknowledging what you saw and that it was not your fault and that you experienced it. If you don't do that, you're going to wear it and it's going to pop out. And I, and I love the analogy. It's like whack-a-mole or, you know, that game where you, you, you smoke one and it pops up somewhere else or um, a doctor that I know, uh, he used the analogy of holding a beach ball or even a, yeah, just an exercise ball or something under the water. So if that's all of your stuff that you're carrying around and you're holding that, that, that the amount of energy to keep that underwater and not from shooting up somewhere, it takes a ton of energy and you don't eat, and you're not even aware of it. And it just takes a life thing. Like you talked about, it's not just the trauma calls. It's what happens in life. It's whether it's a, a aging parent or kid or whatever, and you lose grip of that ball and that thing shoots up. And that's where that explosive anger comes out. That's where those, you know, crazy emotions guys are like crying at kids, watching kids movies. Like it's this bubbling over effect that we have because we haven't processed grief, trauma, whatever is going on in our brains that we, we take on throughout our entire life. You have to share it so you don't wear it. Absolutely. Well, it's, I've heard you mention the beach ball analogy before, I think when we chatted and then um, one of the interviews I listened to. And what's interesting is you're putting so much energy into holding it down that once it comes up and I'm, you know, just visualize a bunch of models playing with a beach ball in some <laughs> Valtrex commercial or something. Yeah, that's it. Once it comes up and people go, well, holy shit, I've had that too. And the next thing you're bouncing that ball around because there's no point hiding it. All of us have that board. And if we just freaking let go, you'll realize how that actually not only is healing for yourself, but as so many people in here have reported, when they've come out of their own dark place, all the people that come out of the woodwork looking for help as well. So, yeah, yeah I mean, you, when, instead of holding it down, understanding that once you process it yourself, you're going to be a yeah. beacon of light for other people and going to be able to use your trauma to start helping others too. Isn't that amazing and it, it beach balls are so much fun because they're so light in the air Like you passing that thing around and you're in the pool of life like who doesn't want to do that i'll be <laughs> with them yeah that's that's too funny but you you hit the nail on the head james is that there's strength and vulnerability and there's so much permission giving right when you see and that's the beauty of peer support and, and that group work that we do is that when you hear someone share their story and you go oh man, I got so much fucking respect for you of the stuff that you went through and that you still are thriving or you're, you've survived that. It just takes great strength to share that straight, such courage. And it is permission giving. When I see you share your story, I see you as a human being, a vulnerable human being that has had a, a similar lived and share experience. Like you said, shaken baby, boom, my Rolodex starts spinning. I've been to three of those that stand out in my head, right? And it's not a one-upmanship or anything. It just, it's just a it's a flashbulb memory that I have when that we're triggered with, but I just, there's so much permission in that. It's like, yeah, I can, I can tell you how I feel about that. I can look for help. I can take a knee too. And yeah, I just think that's so cool, dude. Well, I think one of the problems we have in the fire service is 
for example, Lionel. I mean, his trauma is significant. You know, he gets horrendously burnt. He almost dies himself. He loses brother firefighters in the same fatal fire. And so we look at that. We look at the, you know, Worcester incident and 9-11 and, you know, Grenfell. Um, and we're like, oh, well, well, I wasn't on those incidents. So I don't really have, you know, that kind of call to talk about. And that was kind of one of the reasons not circling around to the book the whole time. But that's the reason I wrote it is because I don't. I'm the other 99% of the fire service who we've all seen horrific shit, but it just didn't make the news in any, you know, massive way. And I didn't almost die and I didn't fall in through a roof and I wasn't hanging off the side of a building with just a rope around me making some amazing rescue in New York. So, you know, but then when you start story- storytelling and the, one of the things that I got told a lot is I, I started reading the book, but I, I have to take my time. And I'm like, boom, exactly. Because these are resonating people. You know, they're crying, they're laughing, they're all this stuff. And it should take you time because you should see, oh shit, this random English dude that worked for several departments in the US has seen the same kind of calls as me. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a farmer that responds when the bell rings in some, you know, rural part of Minnesota or whether you're FDNY or London Fire Brigade or Sweden we all go through the same things. And so, as you said, that vulnerability, that courage, and I, I always point now to Paddy Pimlet, the UFC fighter that made that very, very yeah. powerful statement. That fucking grabbed people by the throat far more than if he finished, you know, with a spinning, flying fuck slap. And no, that would have been a great <laughs> highlight reel. But Paddy's yeah. vulnerability and courage I bet if you collate the views and shares of that, it would blow anything else out of the water. And that is what men and women need to see and hear. And by doing that, you then give people um, the, the permission to come out the shadows themselves, hold their hand up and say, I'm hurting too. Whereas if we if we kind of present this facade, this mask of you know masculinity or femininity or you know, superheroism that we project in in the fire service, not only are you pushing your beach ball back under the water, but you're then telling everyone else that I'm okay and therefore they're pushing their own beach ball back as well. Yeah, for sure, man. And I think the stoicism as first responders, military people, it's killing us. That, That not sharing it piece and just thinking that they're all alone that's what's killing us. And, you know, we can talk about stigma and stoicism and everything like that. It's just like, we, the culture is changing. You've probably seen that you're doing an amazing job to get that, to, to change the narrative. And I, and I used my friend, um, Eric Hughes, and he, he had that same here global is that, that nonprofit I talked to you about. And he's really trying to change that narrative that, that, you know, changing it from, you know, one in five people are going to suffer a mental health disorder or illness. And, you know, it's, and words matter, right? You call it an illness, a disorder, it re-stigmatizes people. And let's call it a mental health challenge. And I see that time and time again, as people are starting to change the narrative and people like yourself and Eric, and uh, they're really doing a good job of saying, be vulnerable, be authentic, reach out for help when you need it and get rid of this stoic attitude because, you know, stoicism has a negative connotation itself. Stoicism can be amazing. We need to be stoic. In the height of the greatest emergency or the person's worst day, they want stoic professional people to get the job done. And then after, we have to do a better job of processing what we just witnessed and coming down and, you know, 
down-regulating ourselves, processing that, you know, vicarious trauma or direct trauma or whatever, and then moving on and, and being good human beings and, and caring for each other and being genuine and all of those, you know, authentic pieces. Instead of saying you're a macho man and you're able to witness all of this stuff, I don't care who you are. You'd have to be a psychopath for this job not to affect you, right? You literally have to be a psychopath. And in fact, there might be a couple of us or a couple of people in our industry that are, but 99.9% of people are human beings that are going to be impacted and they need to acknowledge and recognize that. And it's slowly changing. I don't know about you, but for me, it's slowly changing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's it. And the other, the other side, I've talked about this a few times, but how I think we get to some of our men and women is... I think a lot of us, if we just have the courage and we're vulnerable, we kind of get it. But there's another side. If you want to perform at the highest level as a firefighter, as a paramedic, as a police officer, you have to have a calm mind to get into that flow state. So if you're not processing it for your own mental health, for your family's you know, mental health, and you, that just doesn't resonate and you can't quite get there mentally, well, think about your favorite athlete. They have psychologists. They have all these people to get them into the calm mind. So those 10,000 hours, those 10,000 reps, um, and that high stress environment can combine to get you in a flow state. Well, if you're mm. doing a right hand search and your mind is a complete maelstrom, chances are you're going to get lost or you're going to miss the kid or you're going to fall off the aerial or whatever it is. So, you know, it's, it's a double edged, um, you know, sword in a positive way. Firstly, you're actually finally processing some of your trauma. Secondly, that then is going to make you more resilient and a much better firefighter, paramedic, or whatever you know uniform profession you're in. Yeah, you're building capacity, right? So offloading rocks will help build capacity, so you can be you can show up. You said it, man. Like show up at a very high level, and you know you do some work with the seals and and a lot of military folk and. And they do a lot of training about building resiliency. And I know resiliency is getting this kind of weird, bad name for it because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's like I'm a different person coming into this job now. And, you know, when I look at resiliency, is that just bouncing back to where you are? So maybe you're in a shitty place and you go shittier and you come back to shitty. That's not the kind of resilience I'm talking about. I'm talking about having the healthy capacity to withstand a massive mental health storm and be able to process it and be and grow from that experience, right? That PTSD growth or um, that is critical, you know, creating neural pathways where it's like, I am not in harm. Um, what I saw was not normal, but you know, I'm, I'm going to learn from this experience. And I'm going to grow. I'm going to have capacity. I'm going to, I'm going to great. Um, got some humility in there and some more empathy and understanding about some of the stuff that people are going through. And that's where I see, you know, all of this stuff has made me a different person. I think hopefully now a better person, a more empathetic person, a calmer person with my daughter. And she said that she's seen a change in me, right? Where I'm not flipping, I'm not flipping my lid. And I think that's what I want to teach her is that you can go through some of my greatest adversity and I'm a human being. I'm going to cry. I'm going to have some moments where I'm not the best version of myself, but I'm going to learn from that. And hopefully, you know, she has a better starting place in life. She's seeing a counselor early. She's learning how to downregulate and communicate. Like this kid checks me all the time, man. It's like, hey, dad, you're, you know, you're flipping your lid. You're like, you need to be a little more calm when you're driving. I'm like, yeah, thank you for checking checking me. I appreciate that. And instead of getting mad, it's like, you know, screw you. <laughs> um, 
yeah, we, I know what, and you want to model that you're meant, I'm mentoring my kid, like you are as well, right? Like you're mentoring your boy. And I love that, that you do that. And you see how much of a privilege that is, right? One of my guests said, uh, yeah, because I want to attribute this to my own aha moment. And they were talking about their family being the ultimate barometer. And ever since then, I'm like, that is so, so spot on because you take a crew, especially one that's worked together for a long time you're all getting beaten down the same rate. You're all attending mostly the same calls. You're all losing the same amount of sleep. Um, and then, you know, more often than not, sadly, you're probably experiencing more and more issues at home as well. So asking my truck partner or my captain, hey, you know, how am I doing? Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Because, you know, the subtext, you're as fucked up as I am. <laughs> but, asking, <laughs> but asking a family member, you know, your wife, your kids, you know, your husband, uh, your mother, whoever it is, that's something we don't really kind of dig into. But those are the really the great barometers. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I think I was talking about this recently. But um, I there's one time where I was trying to save my house. I was working at our busiest, um, one of our busiest rescues in Orange County. And then also lifeguarding both days in between. And I'll never forget, I was Skyping my mom one day. And she said, darling, you look like you're dying. Oh, and I was darling. like, oof. <laughs> but it, but that, it was just sheer exhaustion. And I guess my face was so gaunt and everything. And um, it was a wake-up call. And I did actually um, basically say, all right, I'm going to lose this house, but I'm going to keep my health. You know, I'm going to go back to just you know, doing the fire service stuff. Um, and I kind of stepped away from the lifeguarding. But... Yeah, I mean, if I'd ask anyone I was working with, they'd be like, yeah, you seem a little pissed off, but that's it, you know? But mm. to have that extreme reaction from someone who didn't see me every single day was a true barometer of how I was actually doing. And who knows where that would have led if I'd stayed doing that for a few more months. That's awesome, man. I love that barometer piece because we do talk about this. Home is ground zero. And I'll use an example of one of the guys that I helped um, get connected to our residency program. For a year, this guy was suffering right? And shit was going sideways. And the, the wife finally reaches out to me and gets, because we did some family education nights, she got my number and, and reached out and said, husband is literally coming undone. The, the home, the home, home is hell right now. And you would never tell this dude was coming unglued at work, professional, doing his job, a little quieter than normal, but you know, holding it together. And you're right, that barometer at home, she had a way better um, view of what was really, really going down because he was letting his guard down at home. And, and, and unfortunately, his beach ball was freaking flying around <laughs> and hitting all his kids, not in a good way. I think it was a medicine ball that was, that was getting thrown around, unfortunately. And yeah, he was like, you know, you talk about this transmitting your trauma. He was transmitting it all over his family. And so that's what we're finding is this. And how do you connect to families so that they, you, you can find out they're the best barometer. How do you get them connected to resources or how do you help them? I, and when wives call out and say, you know, my husband is literally coming undone I, and, I, and I'm coming undone. I'm like, okay, step one, take care of yourself, right? You have to be, take time for yourself because you're going to be no good to anybody else if you're coming undone yourself. So step one, step two, let's get them resourced, whether peer support, mental health support or whatever. But yeah, man, if you, and we hide so much, I don't know about you, but they, we hide so well, we hide our feelings so well, and we want to look strong. And I know a lot of company officers don't want to appear weak in front of their men or even firefighters, police officers, whoever, 
they don't want to appear weak to their coworkers. So I think that that alone holds people back from getting help because when the shit does hit the fan, you want to be able to trust people. Our, there's so much trust in our world, right? And if that is challenged at all and you're not going to have my back in a fire and you're going to come undone or in a shootout or whatever, I'm not going to trust you. And and so you're looked at as a, the weakest link. So connecting to those folks, the family and friends that are the true barometers, that's the next level of stuff we need to jump into, man. That family education piece is uh, it's critical. What to look for and what to do when you find that. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to kind of walk you through a little bit more of your journey. So what made you go into the career side of firefighting? And then what was that transition like from your previous department to your current one? Well, I kind of gave you the whole policing. I got... Um, turned around from policing because the guy said we weren't hiring you white folk. And, um, I want to say, and I reflect back, man, I think my childhood experience really connected me to my job. I think that problem solving, the mediator piece of me kind of lended itself to community service. I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but, you know, seeing my um, my friends' fathers in those occupations, I guess I had a lot of respect for them, and I wanted that kind of respect, community respect, perhaps. And you know, I volunteered before, and and I loved team sports. And I what I heard and what I found in the Pedong Hall days was that it's a bit of a it's a family, it's another family, and family is super important to me. And that first responder family, you know, took me in, they mentored me, they you know we, we I grew up in that world, really from 19 to 25, you know, talk about formative adult years and work ethic and, and learning and experiences and trauma bonds, right? You go through and see horrific stuff together as a group of people and it's really bonding and it can be a very positive experience because, you know, we did everything together or you put a fire out, you know, and, you know, people's worst day, that tragedy of someone losing their house and you're outside high-fiving because, you, you know, you saved the neighbor's house and meanwhile, people are crying and they lost everything. But there's this, this feel of camaraderie and and a job well done and, you know, or a, a save, right? You saved an animal or saved whatever and saved a person, right? And that kind of stuff really, you know, filled my cup up and it, and it gave me purpose and you'd have to have purpose and meaning in life. And I guess that was, something I just fell into and I fell in love with the job, man. Like totally. And I still am. I got 25 years later or 30 years, if you include my paid on call time. And I still love going to work. I still love going to the alarms, still love the adrenaline, still love working with my crews. And it's a family. It's another part of my family that I've grown up with. And I've made some amazing friendships and bonds along the way. And yeah, it's funny. I, I didn't. I don't do it for to be a hero. I don't do it to for the accolades at all. And I, and you can ask anybody. Typically on our jobs, we don't do it for that, right? So you don't want that recognition. But I mean, it's always nice, of course. People, you know, they thank you for your service. You're like, you know, thanks, thanks for appreciating us. And um, but yeah, you do it because it fills your cup up. So you mentioned multiple relationships. Walk me through that. Like what you know, what which elements compounded to to cause the demise of the first one? Or was it just simply, you know, being with the wrong person initially? 
Oh, God. There's a landmine to step on, right? So, I mean, I was a young, I was young for my first, I call it my mulligan marriage. And so I look back and I was a kid. In fact, I wrote my written exam for Coquitlam on my wedding day. So they actually put me in a separate room by myself so I could write it ahead of the, the, the group of 500 or whatever it was. And I was in this little room and people filed by. I remember that distinctly. And then I went and got married. And I remember in the interview, they asked, like, tell us about a, you know, a really tough thing that you, you overcame. I'm like, well, frick, I got married on my written exam day. And so I tell you this story is because my fire service career started when my marriage started. And so, you know, as a young guy, and I kind of was married to the fire service in the beginning. And I think I put more energy into my job than in my relationship, perhaps. And I think, yeah, I, you know, we were young. Do we grow apart? There was some, I'm sure there was, there was stuff that happened between us and some stuff to do with trust and, and whatever, and just different views on life. And I was a simple guy, you know, blue collar fireman. And, and perhaps she had some aspirations of, bigger and better and I'm not a corporate person or lawyer or doctor that's going to make a shitload of money and take you around the world and at the time you know I was very content with what I was making and and I didn't have any other aspirations right and so that marriage ended and no kids or anything like that and you know we both looked back and we got together you know a while ago just had coffee and, and reflected and it's like you know what we both accepted that we were kids we were young men and uh we just you know grew, we grew apart and she's you know happily married again and has a couple of kids of herself and I wish nothing but the best for her and then my second marriage was where I had my daughter and again still married to the fire service and <laughs> married married her and we had a daughter together and I look back now and I go I think I buried myself in my career because I was avoiding dealing with my own shit, whether it's childhood trauma, whatever, um, 25, 20 plus years of stuff unprocessed. And I think I transmitted a lot of my shit onto my family and my relationships. And I buried myself in work. I got involved with the union back in 2005. And so I took on another job, another role in the fire service. And you talk about you know, I think of people are like an onion, right? They have all these layers, right? So they have your childhood and then you have your trauma and then all of your jobs and life experiences and just layer, layer, layer. And I took on this role and I, and I buried myself in this role and I was so I'm supporting other people, right? And I'm part of the critical instant stress team. So I'm doing call diffusings for calls. And then I, I get a blend of, I don't know if I'd gone to that call because I'd listened to it and I took it on as my own and then I had my own calls. And so you're just, you're piling stuff on and the union work. And then my relationship is suffering because I'm going to conferences and conventions and union meetings and bargaining. And I'm, I'm literally immersed in that life. And I still have to be a father and a husband. And I'm probably not doing those jobs really good. And then I took on another role in the provincial. And so now I've got, I'm wearing a whole bunch of hats, working for a lot of other people, doing work safe claims, like worker comp claims and appeals and, and helping people through dark times. And I'm here, I'm falling into this childhood role where I'm supporting other people and I'm not taking care of myself. 
And so there's this unwinding of the self-care piece where I'm a low priority. My family's a sort of a higher priority and everybody else in my job is the top priority. And I reflect back and I'm, I'm embarrassed, I guess, or I'm, I, I'm ashamed that I didn't have that perspective and I got my priorities all screwed up. And I think ultimately, you know, there's a lot of other things that we could get into, but you don't have that much time and of why it fell apart, but it did, it fell apart. And you know, I tell you, James, I still grieve the fact that I was unable to keep my family unit together. I'm embarrassed by that. And I have a lot of shame around that, of that I failed as a husband and a dad really, because you know, my daughter's, she's collateral damage of that. She's, she was impacted by that. And that failed marriage made me feel like a failure and it got thrown at me. Right. I know you've had a, you're on your second and, and I, you know, wish the nothing but the best for you for this one. And, but I look back and it's like, it's almost like, um, there's a lot of stigma around that. It's like, well, you fucked up the first one, you fucked up the second one and you probably shouldn't be in a relationship because you're kind of messed up and you're the common denominator. So <laughs> Yeah, that's my journey through those relationships. And um, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, here I am at 50 years old, still a romantic, I guess, at heart and, and trying to be the de- best dad I can be, really. That's my, my goal. My, my main priority is my daughter and that's, I'm putting all my energy into that. So, Well, you talked about shame and I think that's something that comes up over and over and over again. I was talking to someone the other day who... Um, you know, had been about to take their own life and they were ashamed of, of that, you know. Um, when I look back, what you've just described, I think is one of the least discussed red flags of some sort of mental health challenge. We all know the overtime whore, you know, that guy, the one that takes, or girl, takes, you know, every shift that's available, they take it. And before I used to think, oh, you know, they're obviously obsessed with, with money. Now, six years of conversations like this, I realize, what are you avoiding? Because there's no better way to not address the shit that's going on in your head than to do even more work, to take on even more projects. And even myself, like, you know, I've noticed, you know, if I'm doing interviews and things, oh, I want to call someone and I'll be like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Or I could not call that person and just be present for a couple of hours instead. You know, so I see that even, you know, whether men- mental health being, you know, somewhat okay or more extreme. But so when you look back now and you touched on even the patterning from, from your, your dad, if you were able to control alt delete, what would you do differently now? What, what did you identify as some of the things that you were trying to, to bury with busyness? Yeah, that is exactly right. Bearing it with busyness. And because I've learned something about myself is I don't like conflict. But I, if anyone would describe me, is that I don't back down from conflict. <laughs> but I, it's in certain circumstances. And so if I'm passionate about something, I will not give a shit and I will argue my side of things. And I'm a pretty stubborn person, as people describe me. But I was avoiding I was unhappy and unable to communicate that my needs weren't being met. And I was unable to communicate those without feeling embarrassed or, or whatever, whatever hang up I had, I was avoiding those tough conversations that I was not getting my needs met in my relationships. 
And I didn't know how to communicate that. I was worried about the fallout of that communication. And I don't, yeah. And I just, I, I, I catastrophized something that never probably would have happened or maybe it would have, I don't know, but you know, control alt delete, I would have been, and I keep saying this freaking hell, be a better communicator. But people say, Oh, you communicate, you've, you've got an open and honest way of communicating. And, and I was like, yeah, but that doesn't apply to my relationship because <laughs> I'm not, being authentic i'm not being um honest and it's not done um in a way where i'm trying to be hide something or or be deceitful it's just that i'm not i'm i'm afraid of being truthful because i don't want to hurt somebody and this is what i've learned about myself is i don't want to hurt people because i know what that feels like i know what that hurt feels like that rejection the you know <laughs> in high school i never had a girlfriend in high school and I was rejected in high school, I guess, in my mind. And, and I put myself out there as a hopeless romantic a few times. And, and then you stop putting yourself out there and your confidence gets low. And, and then you get into relationships later on in life and you still carry that worry, I guess, and that lack of confidence and self-esteem. And, and yeah, so going back, I would have more confidence in myself. I'd love myself more. And I tell this to my daughter constantly, love yourself first. Right. And she just, I just got a picture of it outside her mom's uh, on her on the pad of her driveway and she's written that in chalk on there love yourself and I love that that my kid is in touch with herself enough to know that that's where it starts because you no one will love you if you don't love yourself and that's what I struggled with I guess and maybe still to this day a little bit right the lack of confidence and people think you know I go into a room and I'm I'm exuding confidence but really there's a part of me that you know worries about being rejected worries about offending somebody worries about hurting people and you know they they you talk about nicknames no filter farina is one of my nicknames <laughs> and so you'd think i'd be a little more cognizant of um what i say but um i kind of get caught up in the in the act but yeah man if i could go back in time it'd be way more communication way more honesty being authentic yeah love myself yeah well i can relate to the confidence thing i was uh let me just put it this way. My mom used to tell me the ugly duckling story all the time. So oh, buddy. Yeah, I had a face only a grandmother could love back then. And so, yeah, I, uh, I had this trail of, you know, rejection and all that stuff. And so I can relate to that because I was also, a, you know, still am an incurable romantic and optimist. But, ah, you know, it's when you have you. a trail of, you know, nose in your in your wake you're like huh about this relationship yeah. thing but uh you <laughs> right. know the good news is as if you can stay in shape and get to your late 40s you you know some of the competition starts to fall away through obesity and death and you're like oh i seem to be slightly more attractive now <laughs> so if you can just hang on kids for three decades you're gonna be there <laughs> <laughs> well don't you find though that the older we get the more people pay attention to just being a good human right? Absolutely. Chivalry is not dead, right? And people place way more importance now on, on things like that, I think, is that they want good humans and you want to connect with good humans. And looks are, looks, looks fade, but being a good human lasts forever, right? Yeah. You don't see too many 40-year-old women going, I just want a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because they've already had that as a teenager in their 20s and they, he's living in a basement suit of his mom's house, still driving the Corvette. Exactly. Exactly. Uncle Rico. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, then I, I just want to hit this as well. When we're talking about all these compounding elements, what about um, sleep deprivation? What did your shifts look like for a bulk of your career? Bulk of my career been four on, four off. So two 10-hour day shifts followed by two 14-hour night shifts back to back. 
And I know there's a big push with 24s. Um, we've got three departments here in BC that have started working 24s. And it's still same shift pattern, but they're working 24 on either end. And they're getting two nights off in between. And what I've heard, and sleep is, is something I've been diving into for the last bunch of years, because it's the fundamental core of health, right? Without sleep, you are not able to recover. You're not able to process. You know, I see it firsthand with my mom in recovery right now in the hospital is, you know, being sleep deprived physically and mentally is taking a massive, massive toll on her and, and the family. And, but I, and I've been seeing this for years. And so those, you know, and I just came off back to back night shifts where, you know, you get a call at 1am, 3am, 3.30, one at five. And I am at 50 years old. I am not recovered. Shit. Maybe at 45, I, I started to notice that I was not bouncing back. I could work in between my, my nights, right. And do it, do whatever union work or, or side jobs like everybody else and not doing that nap pre-work nap that was required really in that, you know, afternoon lull where I prepare myself for my second night shift because tip really we're in sleep depth and we're going into these night shifts and, you know, anything over 16 hours, you're it's the same as like having, you're like, you're drunk, right? Your, your reactions are slower. Your mental processing is slower, all these things, physical, and you're, you need sleep and you're literally, you're exhausted and you do a career of that and it catches up to you. And I, and there's, you, you, you know, it shift work, you know, IR, they've said shift work will contribute to heart disease and cancer. It does. And they've known that they've proven that biologically, if you don't have good, healthy sleeps, you're susceptible and to all the metabolic syndromes, right? Diabetes, et cetera. And so throughout my career, I've noticed it's getting worse and worse and my, my circadian rhythm's all fucked up. And you hear this and it takes several months of good sleep when guys retire to reset their clock. And even, you know, I'm off for 20 days on holidays, which is a rare thing, but it's awesome. And by day 18, I think I've reset my clock and then boom, you go back, back into work and shift work and you're all messed up again. And did that make me an asshole? A hundred percent. It may be a, a walking asshole sometimes, right? And I think our jobs in the health and safety world, world is to turn assholes into assets. And so that's through sleep hygiene, sleep education, and and telling them that you can't work between your nights. You, you need to rest and recover because you're going to put yourself into a sleep depth situation. And there's a major safety risk. You are in a safety sensitive job, and they attribute this to plane crashes, train crashes, and, and all kinds of accidents, is that the number one contributing factor underlying is sleep. And people aren't recognizing that. And there now, there's a huge industry, right? The sleep fatigue um, industry is educating people on that very thing of, of proper hygiene, proper risk controls, you know, taking naps. Why is there so much stigma in the fire service? Like, do you want a tired, sleep-deprived firefighter coming to your help or do you want someone that's rested and that can cognitively you know make snap decisions you know under great pressure you know i want to i want a well-rested person absolutely well i mean i tout the 24 72 um as i think one of the best shifts and i think the 42 hour work week should be an industry standard i know you're well embedded in the union and you know i've you know i've been a union paying uh, member of my whole career but I do question some of the, the the being behind on some of the wellness initiatives when almost every other industry is way ahead of it. How in the through the unions lens, how do we start moving the needle 
to the work week and making that standardized so that we're not working our men and women into the ground? Yeah, it's interesting because you, you hear people working 36s and uh, 48s and 36s. And, and it's like, that is, we are putting our people at risk. Now, I know people want to protect their shift pattern because it's, you know, they like their days off or they live far away and it's part of their commute. So they're so protective at their own detriment of their own health. And they will fight to keep these things. And, and for us, I think from the union side, we need to educate them that, okay, let's be shift agnostic for a second here. And I use that term, one of the sleep guys that I'm, I'm dealing with, Dr. Glenn Landry, he uses a sleep, being sleep agnostic when it comes to shift patterns. And so, okay, we can't change the shift. So let's focus our energy on mitigation and risk mitigation. So it's about um, making sure that you are documenting how, much, how many hours you're sleeping. If you're sleeping effectively, are you getting proper rest periods in there? You know, are you into sleep debt? And then educating them on, on the detriment of that, of when you are over 16 hours and into 18 hours of no sleep and no restorative sleep, what does that mean physiologically to you? Are you setting yourself up for a catastrophic event? Are you setting yourself up biologically for cancer and other diseases? And, and, and then never mind all of that. It's the psychological impact, right? Of, and they know this when you're sleep deprived and you don't process trauma, like sleep is you, you're basically getting rid of all the waste in your body, right? Physiologically, but you're also, it's a way we process our memories. And I think that is a critical piece that could be happening with people that are traumatized that have post-traumatic stress uh, and, and, and injury. And it's because they're not getting enough sleep or good enough quality sleep where they're processing those traumas and bam, they're, they're, it's a double whammy, man. So as a union, um, you know, as the IFF is we're part of in Canada here, developing a Canadian standard on sleep fatigue risk management or so fatigue risk management uh, for first responders. So where our real focus is on hierarchy of needs, risk analysis, and, and basically, you know, shift analysis and then also implementing ways in order to, you know, keep your people rested and healthy and sending people home. Like you don't have a guy showing up at work and if he's hung over or semi intoxicated, you're sending them home, right? Or you're sending them, maybe you're sending them off to the room and it's like, I'll sleep it off. Well, we got it from here. We got enough guys or gals or whatever. And we maybe we do that discreetly. Same thing needs to happen is I've got a guy that's been up with a toddler and he's like literally had no sleep. He's 18 hours without sleep. He is a safety risk for my crews. So we got to be able as a union, as, a, as advocates, basically come to a point where it's non-disciplinary. We say this guy is at, he's a, he needs to be booked off sick, whatever needs to be rested up. And so that non-punitive, non-disciplinary approach to sleep, we have to kind of change the narrative with employers. I think that's what we need to do as advocates for, as a union. So the news hit uh, this week with the whole PFAS in our gear. Um, and I had uh, Rob Bellot on the show, who was the lawyer behind the Dark Waters film, you know, the case where a whole uh, town was basically being poisoned by the makers of Teflon. And it was great to hear that being spoken about and put everywhere. But it angered me as well because... It's so easy to go, oh, that bunker gear company is responsible for our cancer. That takes zero ownership from the employer. 
what I'm not hearing in the mental health conversation, in the, in the cancer conversation, in the obesity epidemic conversation, in the huge amount of musculoskeletal injuries that we have in the fire service is the sleep conversation. When you hear every sleep expert talk about this, they all align in the fact that if you look at how much money is spent on the back end through injuries and you know, overtime coverage, all these different things, it is p- companies are bleeding money. You know, counties and cities are bleeding money, and simultaneously, you know, we're killing our people. How do we bring in the proactive? philosophy that if we invest in our people, if we hire more responders, if we have an extra shift, that not only will we mitigate so many of these issues that we seem to care so strongly about, but also ultimately will save money for these departments too. Yeah. I've been beating that return on investment drum for years. And a lot of us have been in the fire service um, when it comes to health and wellness. And, you know, you could use the analogy, and there's lots to back this up, right? You spend a dollar, you save $3. And you're right. Like in Canada alone, it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. If you combine the economic impact of mental health and sleep combined, it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of product loss, time loss, treatment, accident. Like it's, it's insane, man. And to think that I've been trying to get upstream mental health care or upstream physical testing, cancer screening in the fire service in my department since 2005, and I've I've got dribs and drabs of it, is I don't know why some people just don't get it. Why? There's the wellness fitness initiative that the International Association of Firefighters and the International Association of Fire Chiefs came together and said, we need to do this. This is best practice follows NFPA, um, this is what you need to do for behavioral health, physical health. And why is that not implemented at every fucking fire service across North America, or if not internationally? Why? When you have two groups of people and experts say that the return on investment, and not only it's the right thing to do, is you're going to save people's lives. Period. Like we are the biggest freaking asset in the fire service, the human beings that operate in the first responder world. Without us, you've got nothing. It's a fire truck, police car, ambulance, whatever. It's a fire hall. Who gives a shit? Without the people healthy, you're not running a service. So why would you fucking invest in that? Why do you put so much money in maintenance of vehicles and buildings and you don't put a goddamn cent into maintaining your people? It's your biggest ass. It's the in the business world, they wouldn't even think about that. They, they, they would like, okay, if we spend a dollar, it's going to save us $3. Here's $300,000. Like you do the math. I don't get it, James. And I don't know how many more business cases I've got to build or cancer stories I got to tell or suicide stories that or funerals or listen to fucking bagpipes. Like I'm, Fuck, I'm sick and tired of it, man. I am. I mean, it gets me angry because people are like, oh, you know, thoughts and prayers, another funeral is so sad. You know what? We could have prevented that. We could have gotten upstream and plugged the fucking dike and done something about it with education and proper operational guidelines and support and treating people like people. But people in those leadership roles still aren't getting it. And they're not 
whether they have the balls or not to go in front of city council or municipal managers or HR or finance or whatever, and put their neck on the line to fight for the resources to properly resource their biggest asset. Shame on them for not doing that. Cause that should be your number one job. It's not getting more fire trucks or, or fancier halls or whatever. It's taking care of your freaking people, man. So I'm preaching the choir to you. I know, but my God, it just, it gets me going. Well, it should. And I think that's the thing is I made this, this point recently. We're really good at funerals and my dislike yeah. of bagpipes was, you know, parallels yours i even wrote about it in the book because i remember as a younger guy working in lifeguard in london a man would practice his bagpipes on Hampstead heath in london and i remember you know walking to work in this beautiful you know winter's morning and the bagpipes are kind of carrying over and i go wow that's beautiful fast forward 20 years fuck bagpipes You know, yeah. I mean, I can't stand them. They talk about trigger. That's what triggers me. And I, I've told yeah. my wife, like, if I die, if there's a fucking piper at my funeral, I'm going to climb out of that coffin and choke that motherfucker because I'm done hearing them. <laughs> and it's, you know, I'm joking, oh. but it's not funny because yeah. every one of our people, you know, I've lost people to suicide and overdose and, and you know, cancer and, and uh, cardiac arrhythmia and stroke and autoimmune disease. And I guarantee you, if you could, as we said before, control alt delete their lives to the beginning, they may not have lived a hundred years, but I guarantee you they would have lived, lived a lot longer had it not been some of these contributing factors. And as you touched on the shipping agency or the, the, um, profession, the, the airlines, they have caps on their work week. They have caps of how long their people can be awake. And we have to protect people day and night. So. Why are we not changing the work week to allow our men and women to thrive? You know, as I pointed out, we used to send children up chimneys and get them to work in factories till a group of people one day said, this is fucking insane. But here we are in 2022 working our responders 56, 80 plus hours a week. The people that we're calling on our worst day to come save our children. And you're yeah. okay with them working double what the average civilian works. It is yeah. fucking insanity. And as you said, right. it's time that the people in the leadership positions put on their fucking big boy pants and actually step the fuck up. Because I'm so yeah. sick of, as you said, post after post after post of these tragic losses, 99% of which were in some way, shape or form preventable. Yeah, I hear you, man. Sing it. Yeah, for sure. And it's five out of five. Like, it's not just a little impact. It is massive, right? And it's, and I, you know, the IFF did a thing a while back. It was about out of the shadows, right? We're bringing PTSD, mental health out of the shadows. And now we're aware of it. Now it's in our face. And we are, it's like, you got to do something about it now. Like, you can't just talk about it. Like, you got to freaking put pen to paper. You got to put cash in and you got to actually invest in it. And I'm sick and tired of the checkbox and lip service that we constantly get. And the other piece is, it's just so infuriating, infuriating is that people were, everyone's hanging their freaking shingle up that they want to help us, right? Now they see us as this hurting industry and they're almost like, like we're the martyr of the uh, mental health world or, or whatever. It's like, no, fuck that. Let's do this together. Like, let's build something. And that, that was kind of the motto of Dr. Shields and, and our resiliency program is nothing for us without us. Quit building stuff for us without us because you don't know us. And if you want to know us and you want to show some curiosity and humility that you're not the expert knows all, 
come and talk to the subject matter experts that, who are in the trenches and let's build this together because you're not hitting the mark. We have people on a freaking revolving door in treatment because they don't get us. They don't get our language. They don't get a return to work and what that looks like in the first responder world. They don't understand what the family, how crucial family support is in educating the family. Like, so all of these treatment providers need to wake the fuck up and come and knock at our door and ask us, what can we do for you together with you? And, and that will change the trajectory of people's healing immensely if they do that. Instead of this for-profit, greedy, you know, pharmaceutical world of, you know, let's give them meds and let's give them a 60-day inpatient treatment in a silo. It is not working, man. Like, that's just my opinion. And we've been making relationships with a lot of treatment providers and they're starting to wake up and they start to incorporate the sleep piece and the peer support and the return to work. And, and, um, and those are all really good evolutions, but we need to do so much more. Well, more often than not, a lot of the people that I see bringing solutions to some of these issues, whether it's military members, whether it's police, fire, are our men and women. So talk to me about the inception of the BC Firefighter Resiliency Program, and then I'd love to hear how one of my favorite humans, Lionel Crowther, became one of your very first uh, firefighters to go through that. Yeah, and Lionel and I became very good friends because of that process. So I'm going to take you back to 2015 in uh, Surrey Fire Department. We had two back-to-back suicides within seven weeks of each other and it freaking rocked our world like you know the ripple effect of something like that and to have one happen right after another one and these guys one guy was you not that you saw it coming but he was like the poster child for canadian mental health he talked about his story he talked about being a champion he was vulnerable he spoke out he was getting help and he still died by suicide because he felt alone felt like it was the only option. It just crushed our world. And then to have another guy who was quite quiet about it, no one knew it was coming, who was suffering very quietly, took his life, or I should say died by suicide because we don't want to stigmatize him. And that just, that was like, holy crap. Like what is happening here? And then we had another couple in Vancouver and we had some, and a lot of bagpipes and a lot of amazing grace, man. And we, we basically said enough is enough. We got to do something about this. And our association president at the time said, we're going to create a mental health task force. We're going to look at this and find out what the hell is going on. We're going to survey our members and we're going to find out where the holes are and what we can do to provide services to our affiliate and, and to educate our members and to support our members. So we, we went down this road and we surveyed 600 and some odd firefighters in British Columbia. And we found out what the gaps were. And at the same time, the BC First Responder Committee was born, which is a consortium of union and employers from all of the first responder groups led by work, workers' comp and the deputy or the Ministry of Labor all came to the table and said, let's do something about this. So there's these two parallel things that are happening at the same time. Now, flash forward to 2017, and I want to say it was in 2016 that I met with Dr. Duncan Shields and a really good friend of mine, Tony Cease. He's an ex-military POCO firefighter. And he and Duncan and David Poole had started the Veterans Transition Program in British Columbia. It was taking vet or guys that were coming from 
Bosnia and Rwanda and, and other conflicts coming back and they were in, retransitioning them into civilian life. And it was a transition program. And it was group work. And Tony was part of developing this with the two docs. And they say we're saving lives and changing, changing lives. And Tony's like, there's so many of my people around me, first responders that are hurting. And I'm like, me too, man. Like there's so many people reaching out and we don't have anything for him. He goes, I want to introduce you to Dr. Shields and I, and I want to do this. I want to do this program for us. And so we met at Burke Mountain Fire Hall. And as soon as I met this guy, this, this little nerdy, you know, doc, you know, registered clinical counselor with glasses. And I'm like, as soon as he started talking, James, I'm like, I fucking love this dude. Like this guy is a brother from another mother. And immediately I'm like, before he's even finished describing what they do, I'm like, we're doing this. He goes, really? No, I said, no, hundred percent. I'm going to put all my energy in behind this. And we're as an association going to support this. And we're going to, we're going to make this freaking happen. And we as association asked workers comp for a grant. Myself and a couple of guys were grocery shopping at Costco and we were running groups out of this Loon Lake, which is ironic in name in itself. We were, everyone go up the Loon Lake and talk about your feeling. And dude, it's been so impactful. And so that was sort of the origin story. You know, Tony had this vision and, and the two docs were just amazing. Humil hum the humility and curiosity that these two guys had and the ability to facilitate a group of men and women to come together and share their story in a safe space and to be seen and heard. James was the most, well, I went through in 2019 and I can tell you personally, the most powerful experience I've ever had, but that's another story. And so go back to Lionel, my brother from another mother. And here's a guy that went through, as you described, personal adversity beyond, right? Burned, lost colleagues, was suffering, his family were suffering with him. And he reaches out and he's like, I need help. And I'm like, dude, I want you to come through. We're piloting this program. And I want you to be one of the people, first people to come through the program. And he, he can tell it but it was, it changed his life. It set him, he was barely surviving that. And the fact that he was able to share his story have uh, with people that have shared and lived experience. And he was able to timeline, get some psychoeducation, build friendships and bonds and tell his story and finally be heard. I, like he says it, it saved his life. Right. And through that process, we, when we quickly became very good friends. And if we could just save one person with that program, we're good. And we continue to hear this feedback where we're saving lives, man. And I can, I tell you, I share the story of one of the guys that came through and it took him a lot of courage to reach out to me. And he was, it took a bunch of convincing. I think even his wife had reached out. And he finally came through the program. And to get up to Loon Lake, it's a seven-kilometer drive off a gravel road. It's in the UBC Research Forest. And this guy, we do screening prior to. So we do a baseline screening. We do some suicide ideation and depression inventory and stuff like that. And the two doctors interviewed him. And basically, there's no sign of him being suicidal, right? Because we hide this shit so well. Well, this guy tells me later well, I was driving up that gravel road and do you know how many times I wanted to run my car into a tree? And I was like, oh, fuck, man. He goes, but that program saved my life. 
And so he and his wife took me out for lunch. And I remember it was in the Cactus Club in here in Coquitlam. And we're sitting there at the table and like, you know, it gets emotional and the wife's emotional and they just like, they wanted to take me for lunch and thank me for getting into this program and basically saving their life, their marriage, the guy's back to work, he's retired now. And we're bawling our eyes out. And I, and I say this again and again to people that come through the program. I'm like, I didn't do anything. I literally put your name on a roster. I, I followed up with you to make sure you're going. I followed up with you to make sure you liked it and if we could improve on it. And if you liked my Costco shopping. And this guy's like, you saved my life. And I'm like, no, man, you saved your own life. You and your wife together put in the work, uncovered the, took out the rocks, unprocessed, you know, processed all that grief and trauma and got healthy and practice what we were teaching you. And so that's, that's the program is we're creating people that are sharing it and not wearing it. They give permission to others to be vulnerable and to reach out for help and take a knee. And we're creating these little seeds of hope in the community and it's growing and growing. We've put over 400, no, over 200 people through. Yeah, it's over 200 people now. And those 200 people have, I'm sure, reached out and been champions of mental health in, their, in the fire service. And we've had men, women, we threw fire chiefs through there. So I'm super proud of the program and we're still running them. And we were able to get some grants, but you know, we're getting um, a huge Movember grant. We got like over 400 grand from Movember. Uh, super proud of that. So we're running police and fire programs now. So we've got two parallel programs going and it's just going gangbusters, man. So, and that was built together, right? For us, with us. So fucking is amazing, dude. It is. Well, you know, kudos to you as well, because I mean, you collectively, because this is what I see over and over again is it's usually, you know, a man, a woman, a group of people who are sick of going to funerals and it drives them to, you know, burn injured camps or, you know, mental health or, you know, tackling obesity, whatever it is, but they stand up and, and care. And I think that's it. You know, if each one of us stood up, if half of us stood up, and help the other half imagine imagine the impact we'd have but the problem is is that, you know usually it is some of these smaller groups um and so you know we need to we need to all look around and see how we can help if we're hurting when this now is not the time we're the one that needs the help yeah. but if you happen to have come through and you're out the other side and you have the strength at the moment don't just sit there with your arms crossed going well i'm fine now Look around and see that there's a way you can actually start lifting others up. And I think that's the part that's missing. And it's what I hate about a lot of the narratives in, in kind of modern times. You know, it's, 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 it's almost like an anti-charitable movement where, well, I've got mine. I'm fine. Why should I pay your student loans? Why should I do this? Why should I, why should I pay your healthcare instead of, well, wait a second. I go to this building and I worship this diety and read this book about this dude that was super selfless and then i walk out the door and i'm a selfish piece of shit maybe maybe <laughs> i should actually look around and go how can i be christ-like buddha-like krishna-like whatever and lift people in my community up yeah man and that's unionism in a nutshell so why aren't we we're taught that we're we've taken oath right to to lift other people up and this whole if you don't have it or if I don't have it, you don't have it. Or you should get paid less because I don't get paid that. I, I, yeah, I, I get that. I've got it figured out, so you figure it out. 
And yeah, man, it just, it goes against principle, the human principle of helping others and then just being kind and for no other reason other than being kind. Right. And I think, you know, I, I, we take care of, we're a family and we keep saying this, we're a fire family. We, we grieve together. We celebrate together. We need to take care of each other together, right? Treat your, I, no one would treat a family the way some of us are treating other family members ever, man. So yeah, lifting everybody up and being part of the solution. Yeah. And leaving it better than we found it. That's the bottom line. Absolutely. Well, as you touched on for a second, ironically, you ended up going through your own program, ironically or beautifully, depending on how you look at it. So walk me through kind of, you know, the, the years leading to that. What, you know, if there were any pivotal calls that were troubling you or some of the red flags that you were seeing within yourself? Yeah, it, it, oh. it started, I think, in the, when I went into the training division. And um, so that was like, I want to say 2016, went in it for a year and a half. I've never been more stressed. And I'm wondering if it's a combination of, and you know, you take this layers of the onion, right? So life experiences, work experiences, organizational stress, and you, and you pile it all on and, and the trauma calls that are unprocessed. And so I go into the training division with these massive expectations that I'm going to change change the the training world and i i go in there and i wanted to build confined space programs and everything and and i've had lists on the whiteboard lists at home like my wife i was driving her nuts at the time i'm sure i'm turning the light on i'm writing out things and i'm and i feel like i'm in between i want to accomplish so much i'm putting tons of pressure on myself and then being a dad and and the america and a relationship that was probably breaking down and you can probably just hear on my run-on sentence here is that things were building right so years of unprocessed trauma, I go into it, what I considered a very stressful part of my career, mainly because it made, I was putting that on myself, right? I was putting on this very high expectation that I wanted to perform and show everyone that I could do this job. And, and I was in there and there's lots of senior captains that were, that I was trying to train, right. And, and, you know, respectfully go, you know, this is, this is the newest science and, and all that. So tons of pressure and it was building and, and I use this story when we, we, we have a program where we teach mental health professionals about our job and how to treat us and not how to treat us, but how to connect and relate to us and stuff like that. And, and I use this story where I come home from the one day of work, uh, working days and like the garage door opens I, and my daughter's standing there. She's eight years old with a Corona and a lime in her hand. And I use this story because I come in and I'm like, oh, like the wife is nowhere to be seen. And I guess. Every day I come home and I'm crushing a couple of Corona, maybe three, four, every single day, right? And the kid knows, you know, crack one, lime goes in, they're all cut up in the fridge. There's always cold ones. And here's my kid giving me my medicine. Here's daddy's medicine, right? And I was like, oh, shit, light bulb goes on. I'm coping. I'm, it's a maladaptive. And I'm not like getting shit faced. I'm having a couple beers to calm down and then make dinner and, and, and whatever, right. Become into dad mode. But here's my kid. And it was this like this memory that I'm like, I'm not coping well and things are building up. And ironically enough, I'm starting to transition into this new mental health role. I was always in a health and safety role, but now I'm the mental health guy. I'm on this task force and I better fucking practice what I preach. I'm not doing any self-care. And it took me three years, James, to realize as my marriage spirals out of control, as my behavior spirals out of control at work, 
that ugly part of me comes out way more than I like that dark side and shit's spilling over and I'm, I'm unable to hold the beach ball under anymore. And the doctors had been bugging me for years. Like you need to come through the program. You need to witness it. How can you sell it? How can you uh, tell people about it without going through it yourself? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's someone that's in need of it more than I. And I kept on avoiding and putting it off and putting somebody else in my place. And it finally got to a point in the May of 2019 where I'm, it's literally shit. I'm going, it's going sideways. Maybe it's 2018. And, and uh, I'm like, I got to go through. And I phoned up a friend of mine who I got hired with. And I'm like, Scotty, you got to come through with me. I need, I need support. <laughs> and he was going through some stuff in his life and could use it as well. And he was our fire hall chaplain. Him and I ran the system and peer team together. We both had tons of rocks in our backpack. And so I went through with him and then another fella that I worked with who was struggling a little bit. I asked him to come along as well. So I dragged these two guys and we went through the program and the doctors were very happy to take my call and say, okay, we're going to do a psychological assessment. We're not, we know you're, we know you're nuts, but you're not suicidal. You're going to come into the program. Fantastic. And going through that, I tell you, was it ever humbling? The, the guys, and it was all Gooper guys that went through and we have peers that come through the program and come back to be peer support, I guess, and who help facilitate and share a bit of their story to get the group going. We're, we're, and there was a, a guy from Vancouver and a retired guy from Langley Township or Langley city. And so I sort of knew those cause I I'm running the program. I met them. I'm putting them back into the program and, um, it was kind of weird to be on the other side of the chair with them there, but I knew the doctors for a long time. They were my brothers from another mother and I felt safe and comfortable and I had my friends there. But hearing the stories of the other guys that were going through, and there was a guy that was new hire and there's a guy that was senior to me. And there, so we had quite a, quite a group of people. The theme that come up, came up that blew me away, man, was, the ACEs, the adverse childhood events that they endured. Dude, it was so heavy and humbling to hear that they survived that and their dads themselves and the firefighters and people in the community and coaches and, and whatever. The fact that they survived that gave me hope that I could overcome anything. And we all had the same lived and shared experiences of the trauma in the fire service, but that was so impactful to hear the before they become a firefighter stuff and how they endured that and had never spoken about it to anybody. Never felt always, you talk about shame, crippling shame, but to be brave enough to say that in front of a bunch of dudes, oh man, I had so much respect for them. And there was such a bond created. And I did some timelining and it was the first time in a long, long time where I looked back at my life and I'm like, yeah, maybe I didn't have most perfect life. And maybe I had a lot of trauma through relationships and, and whatever, however my, you know, I grew up and, and the stuff that I'd saw. And I was, and I finally came to realize that all of that stuff impacted me and it changed me for who I was, but also, it doesn't define me and I'm who I am now because of that. And so there's, it was an acceptance and it was an offloading and, and, and oh man, I wrote pages. 
And I love that you wrote a book about your experiences because I wrote a very tiny fraction of my experience and it was so cathartic, like you said, writing out my thoughts and feelings and my experiences was so healing, so healing. And I only shared that with a few people, like what I actually wrote, because I think it would scare a lot of people of, of what I saw, I guess, and, and have experienced and felt. And, um, and I came out of that program with a whole new set of skills and insight into myself. And I'm still growing, man. Still got a lot of learning, still a lot of, a lot of growing to do a lot of healing, but it really set me on a trajectory of thriving and healing. So that was the impact of that program for me personally. And Lionel and I and everyone else that's gone through that program shares different experiences, but there's one piece where I'll spoil it if people, maybe they go through it, but it was super impactful is you go out in pairs at the end and you basically find a rock and it ties in nicely with my backpack analogy of all these rocks you put in through your life, whether it's work trauma, life trauma, whatever. And you find a rock and you basically say, this is all of my shit that I've been carrying for all these freaking years. And it's, I'm going to put it all into this little rock or big rock. And there's a lake up there. And uh, actually, we were on the ocean at the time. And I chucked that thing as far and as hard as I could. And I walked away feeling a whole lot lighter. So that was a very pivotal point for me where it's like I don't have to carry this stuff anymore and one of the guys he's a, our president of our association and he shares this so I can share this with, with you is that he took his rock as a reminder and it sits on his desk and he's the president of our association he supports all of our mental health initiatives and he's got his own very big story but he keeps that rock on his desk as a reminder to continue to fight for other people to continue to provide resources and to continue to share his story so he can help other people. So there's all power in that man, power and story. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing yours. I mean, there's so much power in that. And just for while we're on a tangent, um, Lionel's episode was 215, Lionel and Joanna. So for anyone listening, you want to oh, hear yeah. his perspective, then listen to that one as well. Now, you yeah. touched on ACEs scores. That was a huge awakening or aha moment that I had doing this podcast. As I started getting in, Dustin Hawkins was someone, for example, that really poured ah. his heart out. But I started realizing, my God, like so many people on this show, as I started being more confident in asking, you know, earlier life questions, have trauma, some, you know, horrendous, you know, childhood abuse and sexual abuse and all kinds of stuff, some more um, an absence of love, you know, with the middle child, that kind of thing. But you see this so much in our professions, because if you are hurt, if you were felt vulnerable as a child, I think it's a double pronged um, reason to come into our professions. Firstly, you want the, the buck to stop there. You want to be the protector. But also, as we said, that busyness element, that adrenaline what a great profession to not have to process your childhood than to go ride a fire engine for 10, 20, 30 years. You know what I mean? So we'll be a soldier or whatever it is. So one thing that that I would love to see, and this is just the kind of idea I had a, probably about a year ago now, having a unique lens on the fire service hiring process, having worked for four different agencies, East Coast and West, is we talked about uh, box checking. I had to do polygraphs and all but one. And which is complete smoke and mirrors bullshit. 
I mean, I yeah. lied my way through three of them and I'm not beating my chest saying that, but I was a firefighter and I wasn't a fucking choir boy before I, I did this. And secondly, those ridiculous psych tests that we take, the yeah. hundreds of questions. And, I, you know, I give this example all the time. You know, do you like camping? Do you like sunshine? Do you like flowers? Do you like touching children? Do you like butterflies? You know, whoa, wait, what was that last one? What? Time out. What? But listening to people that are psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, they, they say, no, those 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 tests are horrendous those budgets are already there so why don't we instead take that same money and when we hire a new hire class whether it's during if you have a long probation i mean a long academy during the academy whether it's the probation put someone through five you know um visits with a counselor if you have childhood trauma which all of us do at different levels you're gonna start offloading some of it and you've also then created a, a relationship with a counselor that you can then continue through your career so to me you don't have to find a single you know red cent of budget and just stop that you know box checking bullshit you did a background check which is what really counts and then use that money to give counseling in that first year i've got a funny feeling that would make a huge dent in some of the issues that we're seeing Buddy, you nailed it on the head. Wouldn't that be amazingly proactive? And the key piece to that is having occupationally aware mental health professionals providing that service so that they understand our profession, the challenges and barriers. And, and my God, to, you said it, to find a mental health champion, someone I call them your mental health Sherpa, to have them identified early on in your career as you go through life challenges, they've got your baseline and they can help provide psychoeducation. They can be there. Finding a mental health professional when you're in the red or when the shit hits the fan, that is not the time to build relationship. You hit it, right? It's having that right out of the gate, offloading some of your shit before you're a first responder, and then having a champion that when you hit life challenges and bumps along the way, because there will be, my God, man, that would be amazing. And that's such a, that's $500 or $700. That would, you know, the return on that would be tenfold or, you know, and we here in BC, we've got an average of $180,000 in costs with someone being off with a mental health injury. That's, that's one that's backfill treatment, everything. It's 180 grand. So you imagine redirecting that 180 grand into counseling services for your people? Like, good Lord, man, the return on investment would be huge. And you'd have healthy people right out of the gate, man. Oh, I love it. would love that. I think it's brilliant. Well, one more thing that really jumped out when you were telling your story was you were in training. Now, when you were in training, I'm assuming that you weren't on shift. You weren't with your crew. Is that right? So That's now right, all yeah. of a sudden, even though in theory you should be doing better because you're sleeping in your own bed every night, you're also taken from your tribe. So that purpose, yeah. because yes, training is important but it's not responding to calls and you're not around your people you're not around that dining room table as we talked about at the beginning so when you look back was there an element of isolation attached to that role that you see as a contributing factor yeah 100 percent, man and getting back to my crews was totally healing and timing was everything but you definitely and i hear this time and time again whether it's communication division fire prevention investigation training you are isolated and you're, you're not, you may be part of a small little community within that division, but, uh, and it gets depending on, the, on that, but it's a different thing. You're not responding to calls, maybe, like maybe as a safety officer, but you're definitely not part of the team like you are on a day-to-day -day basis for a 10-hour day shift, right? You spend more time with your crews in suppression than your family. 
And so, yeah, I felt like I wasn't, I felt I was like the redheaded stepchild of the fire service fighting in the training division. Right. So I was like, and then, and you're, and I was in a weird place because you're dealing with administration and you're dealing with uh, senior officers. And I was a junior, I wasn't even confirmed Lieutenant at the time. And here I am wearing stripes. Like I felt uncomfortable wearing the uniform because I hadn't in my mind earned it, but that, for that position, you were a captain, you're paid as a captain, you're, you wore stripes, you didn't have bugles, but um, it was an awkward place to be. So not only was I wasn't with my crew and family, I was in this weird position of seniority that I, you know, wasn't getting the street cred from some of the senior officers, because, you know, I, I wasn't an old salty captain. And, you know, here's this new kid in the block trying to tell me what to do and how to fight a fire with the new way, you know, what is this UL and this bullshit that you're talking about, right? And so here I'm trying to, you know, hey guys, you know, like hit her hard from the yard. And like, they're like thinking I have two heads. So yeah, I felt isolated down. And that probably led to the stress buildup too, right? I couldn't, there wasn't the pranks and the frivolity and, and, you know, camaraderie that was, you know, intrinsic with being part of the suppression group. Well, I think that's an important thing for us to remember, whether it's someone who's off with an injury, whether it's someone that's promoted to a desk, whether it's a retiree. Um, you know, the, there's so many times where we're taken from that tribe and I feel like that's, we should be looking out for each other regardless, but it's easier to look out for each other when you're staring at them, you know, across from a fire engine or, or a dining room table. But when they're laid out with their back injury or, you know, whatever it is, or try, you know, transitioned out, they were your beloved, you know, engineer for X amount of years and now they're just sitting in an apartment. I think yeah. that's where we have to double down on making sure we're okay and keeping that communication going. Man, you, you talk about a tribe. It's so true. And that's true in your community, neighborhood, wherever. But it's such a part of our identity being a first responder that when you lose that identity, especially becoming retired or injured or, you know, you're, you can't work anymore, there's that loss of identity and loss of tribe that that isolation kills people, right? And they, and they say that loneliness kills. And if you feel like you've lost your family and you're not being reached out to, or you don't have a retiree alumni that get together regularly and you don't have a family support people, they, it's, they go over the waterfall, man. And it's, it's a sad, sad state that we're losing people. And I don't know about you, but I've getting, getting reached out more and more by retirees that are hurting that like physically cancer or otherwise, but mental health challenges of stuff that they never processed for 35 years of their career and now they're getting a little more vulnerable maybe they've got grandkids and they start thinking or they've got time to ruminate and they're like oh my lord all these triggers right bagpipes or whatever that they have and they're and they have no support there's no counseling their benefits are shit and they're maybe it's because they're cheap firemen they don't want to spend money on themselves they'll buy a sixty thousand dollar boat but they won't go in for counseling for a thousand bucks right and like, well, you know, you got to take care of yourself, but you're right. We still need to reach out to those folks and keep them connected. And I mean, you, there's personal responsibility, but there's also an onus on us as a family and a tribe to look after our people too. Yeah. Well, I heard you talking, I think it was a 10-8 podcast about, I think that the host said, oh, this is a statistic of, you know, first responder suicide. And you said, no, I think it's a lot more. One of the things that Keith Tyson said to me, the the firefighter support mm. uh, cancer Florida rep, yeah. um, which was earlier earlier on this this podcast, he's like, the moment we retire, we cease to be a statistic. And when do you think that most of these diseases or mental health challenges materialize? It's probably yeah. once we transition out. So yeah. 
if you think about how many 50 plus year old male and female firefighters are experiencing all these diseases now, I, I agree with you 100%. It's literally probably a hundredfold the numbers that we're, we're counting as, you know, firefighter illnesses just because the moment that bay door closes behind us, not only do you have no fucking benefits, you know, as you talked about, which is such a disgusting thing, you know, you have the VA yeah. for the military. Yeah, the FA, mm -hmm. sweet FA for the police and fire, sweet fuck all, um, you know, but you also, you know, you, you blow your head off on the back apron there or you're not going to be a statistic. And I think that's unacceptable as well. We have to track all of our men and women when they transition out so we can really see the cost of this job. And hopefully that would add even more weight to what we've discussed as far as proactively making it a career that you transition out and have 20 plus healthy years left yeah. after you retire. Freaking right, man. Yeah. So many people go into retirement just surviving. That's a really, that's a sad testament of we're not doing, we're not doing enough there. Now I agree hundred percent, man. We're doing a disservice to the people walking out. Yeah, you give all those years to the community, and then you're just literally left out, hung, hung, left out to dry. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. We've been chatting over two hours. I want to be mindful of Holy your time. Holy crap, brother! <laughs> <laughs> So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. There's a book by Rick Hansen called Hardwiring Happiness that absolutely connects with me. And I, I, I would definitely, I would highly recommend that one. What about a movie and or a documentary? A movie, or, a movie or a documentary? We're talking mental health here? No, anything. Talking, anything. Oh, anything. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, let, let's, let's go on this mental health. The Joker? Oh, my goodness. Such an Holy amazing film. Mackerel. Dude, that one blew my mind. Blew my mind. And one that has always sat with me and kind of made me think of my military buds with Saving Private Ryan. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many times I've watched that. But uh, it still gives me goosebumps to this day. And so I got a whole lot of respect for all the guys that were in the military that became firefighters. You talk about layers of onions and impact. You know, they take that experience and then come into the fire service. And, you know, instead of tours of duty, now they have like a daily job of, you know, then their body counts just go up exponentially. So those two movies were really impactful for me. But what I just saw recently, Bullet Train, man, Brad Pitt, freaking hilarious. It was so well done and uh, right to the end credits and beyond. It was, uh, I don't know, my daughter and I freaking loved it. It was, it was well done, well acted, some big names in there. I thought it was really cool. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, I want to go see that with my son, actually. So I'll take that recommendation. Thank you. Yeah, buddy. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I'd love for you to have Eric Houston on your on your podcast, man. He's another podcaster, mental health guy, but he's got a cool story. We brought him up for our first responder conference and he's just another good human. You, you'll love him. You'll connect with him. He speaks our language. He's not a first responder. He was a sports exec, but man, did he connect with our people? And yeah, and he's got a huge collaborative of mental health professionals, first responders, sports athletes. Like he's, rubbing shoulders with the guy that just wrote, you know, the guy that wrote chicken soup for the soul. And um, 
another amazing little pocket series of books, right? That uh, get to the point. But this guy, he would be, it would be a really cool conversation about him trying to change the narrative around mental health. So I think I would highly recommend Eric to be on your podcast. Beautiful. Let's make that happen then. Thank you. Yeah, man. Okay, I'll connect you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Uh, I So for my with my daughter and I, I kayak. I've got a, uh, the river is right here. It's like an Al- the Alouette River. So kayak and I've got an e-bike. So there's the dikes right here that I jump on. And I can tell you riding to and from work, the best medicine. There's some amazing hikes around here. I've got lakes that I can go out on and kayak. That's my happy place is getting into nature. So that, and I'm, in fact, <laughs> right now I've missed two buzzers because I make sourdough bread. <laughs> and so I've got like, I've got the dough going here and I've missed a couple of my turns, but I'm sure it'll turn out fine. So I find that very cathartic and, and I love making bread, man. I know it's weird, but uh, I love also my, my sister-in-law got me into it over COVID and I just keep doing it every couple of Every week I make some couple loaves of bread. So nature and baking, man, those are the two things. Well, just touching on COVID for a second, you know, I, I said I wrote a book, you learn how to make bread. But <laughs> yeah. uh, so there are some good things that came and I'm talking about the isolation itself, the, the lockdowns yeah. versus obviously the people that were tragically affected by it. Um, yeah. With that, I fear that that isolation really magnified some of the, the, the issues with, with some of our men and women already struggling. What have you seen through your lens on your side of the country with, as we emerge from the last two years? You're going to see, and what I'm seeing is uh, a tidal wave of people reaching out for mental health support because they were hyper vigilant. They were stoic doing their jobs. They didn't have time to process. And so you take an accumulation of shit for a whole career and you hit pause where you're literally locked down emotionally, physically, and, and everything else. And now we emerge from this, where we're going to let our guard down, hopefully, and you're going to see this, this tidal wave of burnout, compassion, fatigue, and everything else come bubble into the service. I think you're going to see a whole lot of beach balls flying everywhere, man. That's, that's what I'm thinking and seeing right now. We have a lot more people reaching out for help. Yeah, well, I hope they do because, I mean, it, it does worry me. We've had a lot of uh, suicides on, on this side recently. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you think about every single positive tool that we've discussed, they were all taken away. Community, yep. you know, time in nature, sunlight, you know, good food, exercise. I mean, everything was taken and what we had spoon-fed, alcohol, fast food, all the wrong things. Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But so I hope people really are looking out because, I mean, I I – Thank goodness a transition out the fire service right before that. So I got to look from the outside in and I was horrified between the just the lack of human interaction, the the, the freaking, you know, the uh, BSI that people had to use. So they weren't even interacting with the patients like they used to these meals in different rooms. I mean, I mean, the very thing that was healing for us and the glue a little bit was taken away. So it really does scare me. And I hope people have this discussion so we can drag that out into the you know to the in front of the light yeah right on man all right well then people i'm sure are, are fascinated would love to learn more love to to kind of visit any areas that you've got online where will be the best places to direct them if they want education and information the bc first responder mental health website is an awesome depository where i would highly recommend if you're looking to help or looking for help and we're, we're very proud of that resource. And the anti-stigma posters that are on there are all free, 
free source. Uh, there's no copyright stuff and there's tons and tons of resources, recommended practices, business cases, gap analysis, you name it. So family support, retiree support, great video series. Um, yeah. And, and you can see some about information. There's tons of people to contact if you're looking for my name on there. And the BC PFFA, my own association, has a bunch of mental health resources as well. And um, those two are, yeah, I mean, there's First Responder Health, which is my buddy, Matt Johnson. There's another guy who would be awesome on your podcast as well. He, he created First Responder Health, which is a VRBO-style directory of mental health professionals that understand first responders. And so you literally go and pick your community. It's gone right across Canada with the help of Wounded Warriors Canada. And so we've done a lot of work educating well over 400 mental health professionals and HR about our world. And so, yeah, that's another good resource for education for mental health professionals, if there are people listening, and then as well as um, education. There's some sleep education on there, a link to some breathing, and uh, you can find a counselor in your area if you're living in BC or anywhere actually in Canada. So that's another resource too. Brilliant. Well, Steve, I just want to say thank you. It's been an amazing conversation. I think we're kindred spirits and other things yeah, that we talked about. Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, again, you have such a, you know, an important lens. And I think this happens a lot. Some of the most powerful conversations I have are people that have, have brought the solution to the forefront, but also have walked the walk. They've been through that dark place themselves, whatever that looked like, and then have the humility to go through your own program, I think is incredible. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Buddy, it was an absolute honor, and you are a brother from another mother for sure. 